Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and uh, welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, if you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a podcast wherein Kyle and I typically take turns introducing one another to films. Uh, typically, this means one of us will have seen the film that we're reviewing, and the other person will be seeing it for the first time. Uh, today is no exception. Um, being as it's July, uh, we decided to do a theme month for our releases this month, um, that being movies about making movies. Um, this is in anticipation of Quentin Tarantino's uh, is his ninth film? Sure. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which of course takes place partially on you know the Hollywood backlots. Uh, so we thought it would be fun to, to cover movies about making movies. And in particular, we're going to be talking about movies uh, that are actually documentaries about the making of films for the most part. Uh, so today... I got to pick the film, and I selected a documentary from 1999, uh, directed by a fellow by the name of Chris Smith, and that movie is called American Movie. Um, <laughs> over the course of this documentary, we trace uh, the path of one Mark Borchart from Wisconsin, uh, trying to make a film by the name of Northwestern, as well as another film by the name of Colvin. Uh, the production of this documentary uh, lasted from 1995 through 1997, so they they documented a pretty pretty substantial chunk of this man's life. Um, so, Kyle, uh, what what were your feelings on American Movie, being as this is your first time seeing it, and this is a movie that I've seen countless times? Well, it's interesting seeing an independent docu uh, an independent filmmaker, and this is as independent as you can possibly get. Uh, somebody trying to make a film. We last week we did um, the uh, Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, and this was a, a, a an established director having difficulty uh, creating a film. This is a this is an alcoholic in Wisconsin trying to film trying to make a film or a couple of films. Um, yeah, it's uh, he's an interesting fella, and uh, <laughs> the. It, the him aside, like this this documentary is like you said, shot over three years. Or I'm sorry, it started in '95 and ended '97, so it's a little over two years that they were filming this, I believe. Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> I just finished watching it, and I went through all the emotions. I'm like, man, this guy is inspiring. I'm like, oh man, this guy is really pissing me off, and like, <laughs> and then other times I'm just like, oh, like. Kind of like when Christian Bale in The Fighter, like he sees his documentary and he thinks about his, his comeback and they were just filming him being a crackhead. You get mm -hmm. kind of those moments where you're like, oh, this is bad. Like this this is... Yeah, this it, it has almost like a National Geographic feel to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, it's like you're, you're watching a, a creature in the wild and, and parts of you are conflicted about the experience where it's like, Oh God, am I supposed to be seeing this? It's like, but the hyenas are over there. <laughs> it's like, don't let the cubs get over there. Well, you, if you danger, if you liked apocalypse now, hearts of darkness is interesting. Cause you can just watch like how this finished product came about. And you're like, well, this is really fascinating. This on the other mm -hmm. hand, you're like, you're just watching a guy who is less than capable run with an idea and barely get there. And you almost don't even care about him getting there. I, actually, near the end, I'm like, I really just want to watch it. I want to watch the whole film. I want to see what became, like, what happened. And I don't know how long it ended up being. Uh, we got to see a few clips. Well, um, it's funny you should say that because uh, I did a little research after, after, well, while I was waiting for you to finish watching the film. Um, Colvin 
is actually on the DVD for American Movie. Oh man, um, I have I I have not watched it, but I can get it to you uh, if you'd like to see it. I think I would like to see. I that. mean, he says numerous times that I, th- I think uh, Northwestern is intended to be like a half hour film, like a thirty five minute film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine Coven is is not far from that. Um, I haven't actually watched Coven, but it's. I think what's really interesting is that you, you as you mentioned with Hearts of Darkness, um, that's an example of of watching a man journey into darkness. A, a professional filmmaker take this this soul searching journey into darkness to try to get this fucker made. Um, American movie isn't so much a movie about making movies. It's more just like a portrait of an individual. Yeah. Um, it's it's a profile of a man at a certain point in his life. Um, and the way, like, in his opening narration that he speaks of things, it sounds like I, this is not his first shot. This is not the first time he's attempted to take on something this big before. And there's this sense that this time will be different. I'll, I'll do it right this time. I won't fuck up like I did before. But so much of what we see unfold throughout the course of the documentary suggests that it's like, no, you're you're in this, like, Sisyphusian struggle of, perpetually shooting yourself in the foot whenever you're about to get to the top of that mountain um there's a comedian i like kyle canane actually he's got the same middle name first a middle name is me um oh. he uh he's from the the chicago suburbs and he has a joke about the creeping oppression of the suburbs and this movie definitely you can feel it i can feel it in this movie and i definitely know what he's talking about he's just like we could stay at Denny's, you know, and just um, like just smoke cigarettes. And like, we, if we keep ordering coffee, we can just sit there. And he's like, "What time is it?" And he's like, "Holy shit, I'm 35." It's just like, this, <laughs> and like that's what this guy is. He's just like, I have this, I have this dream about what I want to do. I don't want to be a factory worker. I'm, I'm trying to make ends meet with these little shitty jobs here and there. I've got a dream, but he just keeps drinking his way into no progress. And he's like, I'm 30 years old, and he's like, I have to clean up some dude's shit at a funeral at, yeah. at a. Uh, at that a, was that was a big moment. Uh, um, you f- later in the documentary. Yeah, spoiler. Uh, but yeah, th- that's one <laughs> the, of the, the big moment wherein he found shit. <laughs> it's just one of those moments where you're just like, wow, like he's just almost spinning his wheels, and he doesn't realize he's just spinning his wheels, and it's kind of sad to watch. Uh, oh, uh, that's what's. What, that's what really draws me to this film. Uh, I saw it, I can't remember how far back, but this and Ed Wood are like on in on repeat, just in the background in, in whatever living situation I'm in, um, <laughs> whenever I need to get the creative juices flowing. Because parts of this documentary, it needs to be said, are like crushingly depressing. Um, but other parts of it are, are very uplifting. And it, it's edited beautifully in such a way that like it, it has a nice rhythm to it it mm-hmm. feels like it feels like a journey and every time i watch it i get something from it whether it's a laugh or like a, a poignant moment or something um but yeah it's it's really fascinating to me like i don't want to completely front load this this episode but what you're saying about the the crushing weight of the suburbs i i, th- I think that shit's real man it's real like i I haven't really experienced it myself, maybe touches of it here and there, but there's this attitude that I've encountered in certain jobs I've had among among certain social circles where there's this sense of, like, quote, not wanting to be one of them, where it's like that's what draws... 
certain jobs attract certain types of people like warehouse work for instance typically you find antisocial individuals because they're they're the types of people who just want to keep their head down and typically don't like other people yeah <laughs> and stuff like that I, I i feel like that's the kind of mindset that mr mark borchart has where it's like i i pursue this not because it's like my driving passion in life but more because it takes me in a different direction than the people around me yeah and i have nothing but disdain for those people so it's like even though this isn't a healthy endeavor even though this even though deep down i know this isn't going to get me anything it keeps me from getting into that factory like everybody tells me i should do yeah which honestly probably would work out better for him in the long run yeah he'd make more money (laughs) he would make more money but he'd he'd be betraying himself and i guess it's more than he can he can stand yeah um i don't know what became of him uh in in more recent years i know he's in his 50s now but i know he he actually went on to take on a few other film projects including a documentary which he completed nice um north northwestern to my knowledge has not been completed yeah um coven obviously as we see by the end of this film, uh, was completed. But Northwestern apparently is still on the shelf somewhere. Um, so without further ado, I guess we should get to the documentary proper. Yeah. Um, our opening shots are in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, there's a lot of driving scenes in this documentary. A lot Quite of a them. few. Quite a few. I, I felt like the Trailer Park Boys to... a little bit. Like, legit watching this, I'm like, this feels like an episode of the Trailer Park Boys. Yeah, I mean, the way that that show is filmed even it's it has a similar look and feel to it um but yeah the, this uh opening shots are him driving at night mr mark borchart um and he's just man he goes yeah. <laughs> like he goes on these these like rambling tangents that it's all very lucid sometimes his word use is a little suspect <laughs> like sometimes it's like i don't i don't know that that word you're using right now means what you think it does but for the most part, he's pretty lucid. I think that if you're an alcoholic, uh, aspiring filmmaker, and somebody makes a documentary about you, that documentary is going to be better than anything you put out. Because we did a documentary, or we did, did an episode on a overnight, which is a documentary about a you know functioning alcoholic turned director, turned mm-hmm. back to probably functioning alcoholic. Well, that's the curious thing about about cameras is. It's it's very hard to document something without changing it. Um, that I forget who said that, but it's it's very true. Um, whenever a, whenever a human is aware of a camera in the room, you can almost bank on them always changing their behavior in some regard. Mm. And I feel like like Mark is the type of guy who plays to the camera a little bit. He has a bit of pro wrestler in him. Like he he go he he cuts promos. <laughs> um, so I think he he tries to put his best foot forward whenever whenever the camera's running, but yeah he's he's rambling while he's driving and he's he makes mention of like 15 years ago. So like 15 years ago he was trying to to make a movie or something. I guess I guess things fell apart and he didn't quite finish it. He's like, well it's gonna be different this time, man. Like I'm gonna do it right and and he he can't he can't slow down to the point that I can like actually take take down his quotes but one that i got was like not just to drink and dream but to create and complete so that's that's where he's at at the beginning of this documentary it's like he he he's aware that his his drinking and his i don't know lack of work ethic keeps him from accomplishing what he wants but at this very moment he's like no i'm gonna knuckle down i'm gonna get shit done well 
I feel bad because I I've I didn't make these life choices, but where I got to now, I didn't really get to by listening to people that were around me in this kind of environment. Like I grew up in you know Southern Indiana, very similar to where this guy grew up, very very similar uh, landscape. And you just don't have people that can point you in the right direction because this isn't what they've done with their lives. Like, he needed somebody to say, like, hey, if you really want to get into film, like, you maybe need to go to school, maybe get a, like, major in, like, film studies, work on a production, not even as a director, just work as something. Maybe Mm -hmm. just an assistant of some kind. Get in there that way. Learn some things. And then maybe one day you'll be able to direct your own film. But he de- he didn't have anybody pointing him in the right direction, so he's just like I'm taking this all on myself. I have a vision, and he had a passion for it since he was very young. Um, Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I think they say since he was like twelve, yeah. like twelve, fourteen, around there. But there's there's more to it than that. And yeah. That is a huge part of it because uh, there are a lot of interviews with his family and his social circle, and a lot of folks especially blood relatives of his actively discourage what he what he chooses to do with him himself um, yeah so that's not healthy right from the get-go that like not imagine not being 12 and having your dad say no put down the camera <laughs> like fuck that sucks <laughs> but he's fighting an uphill that, battle though, he's, he's fighting an uphill battle that has like no reward at the end of it he's just like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it. i'm like yeah you're gonna do it maybe but there's not a lot that's gonna come like come from it but it's a it's this horrible cycle where it's like yeah. part they're part of the the desire attached to it is to spite the people who tell him he shouldn't yeah and but then at the same time he has that that gigantic chip on his shoulder that rebellious streak that more than likely keeps him from seeking counsel where it's like instead of seeking you know someone to do like an apprenticeship on under or like taking on lowly PA work on, on an actual professional film shoot. Yeah. Like he's like, nah, man, I'm going to do it my way. Cause I, I've been to film school. I know how to make a movie. And, and it's, I, I can relate to that. I have a bit of that. In me. <laughs> it's like, and it's, it's difficult to be confronted with, but at the same time, it's like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to end up like this. guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes on his little tirade in the car. And I think we're introduced to, Tom Schimmels, who is an actor who will pop up in several of the productions that were were shown snippets of throughout the documentary. Um, He mentions that he met Mark uh, doing a a radio show. Uh, Mark apparently does like Halloween radio shows in his hometown that they play annually. And then I think uh, we cut to Mark and he's he's behind a an ancient laptop <laughs> oh yeah uh, it's, it's this gigantic gray brick that he's typing on and he's apparently like writing a script for something that has to be finished with like in an hour yeah. or something 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 ridiculous like he makes mention of this is the 11th hour this is the 12th hour man <laughs> um and he's he's rambling he's yelling about how he has to write the script he's a little irritated that this documentary crew is like poised right in front of him asking questions while he's trying to get the shit done then he points out the fact that he has people out 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 in the front yard putting up scarecrows he's like they have no pragmatic (laughs) they have no pragmatic application to what's going on right now but idle hands are the devil's workshop man (laughs) i need to give them destinies yeah he says i wish i could give them destinies but i have to adhere to this keyboard (laughs) 
So basically he's saying, I'm keeping these people busy just for the sake of being busy while I, you know, do the important shit, which, you know, in, in film work or whatever, that, that is something that happens, but it's just funny that he's, he's a hundred percent aware that he has these people doing a bullshit task right now. I was going to say, it was just from his procrastination. It wasn't like he was caught up doing something else. It was just like, no, oh, he yeah, just didn't the, do the it. Other shoe, the other shoe drops here in like a couple minutes, like, yeah. like literally, literally like a, a hundred seconds from now the other shoe drops but in between that we get introduced to one of the most memorable people in this film mike shank i is uh, who is a spectacular human being yeah i have him as uh <laughs> mike my god shank uh that's what i had his nickname <laughs> why why my god he just there's just he has moments in this it's just he he's just so sad like it, he's probably the the saddest person in this whole documentary some of the things he says i just I feel the worst for him than anybody else in this movie. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Like he he has he underplays like the the innate sadness in some of the things that he says, where it's like, oh my god, Mike, that's that's dark. Yeah. But his, he's so flat and monotone over over most things that like unless you're actually paying attention to the words he's saying, you wouldn't pick up on the emotion behind them. But yeah, he he has a lot of darkness in his life. Yeah. But, He's also completely fried his brain with acid. <laughs> with PCP. <laughs> yeah. What was it? Acid and PCP? No. Wait, he, at the same time? So he thought it was acid, and they're like, yeah, this is PCP <laughs> with some kind of like downer in it. And yeah, he said it was laced with something. I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> it was PCP laced with a downer, and he thought it was... He thought it was acid. So it might have actually been acid, PCP, and uh, some kind of downer in it. But yeah, he... I just couldn't figure. I'm like, is he? I thought he was maybe challenged. I thought maybe there was something wrong with him. I'm like, no, he. I think he's literally just fried his brain. No, his brain is is goo. Is, it, it's it it is pudding. I feel so bad um, for the guy. I feel bad for him too. But you know, he's asked a few times in this film, "Are you happy, man?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm very happy." Yeah. <laughs> and he just his demeanor, despite you know the, the innate darkness that's there, like his demeanor is so affable (laughs) like if i had him in the room he'd just make me smile which is i think that's a huge part of why mark keeps him around yeah it's like they're they're good buddies and it's like i just need a laugh at something it's like oh hey mike (laughs) like let's invite mike over what's interesting is mike is actually a very talented guitarist and i noticed i noticed he's really good at playing uh, i noticed the songs that he was playing on the acoustic i used to do the same thing the reason why i did the same thing is because i didn't have an electric guitar and you want to play these songs but all you have in is acoustic i'm like that made me feel even worse i'm like he's a grown man who has to play these songs on an acoustic guitar and he obviously lives with his mother and he just Mm -hmm. can't afford he most likely just can't afford an electric guitar and i'm like that just that really broke my heart because I, I made that realization. I'm like, God damn it, poor guy. Yeah. I mean the the situation around his vices are maybe the saddest part of him. That's like he traded one addiction or two addictions or three addictions for for scratch tickets. Yeah, um, which is really sad. But yeah, he really is actually pretty talented. In fact, m- I think all the music on the soundtrack yep. for the most part is him. I think he's like even that uh even that Mr. Bojangles like. The tune, the melody that plays yeah. throughout the film. I don't think the lyrics at the end are him. Like, I don't think those are his vocals. No. But, but yeah, he he's pretty handy on the guitar. Um, 
So we cut to Mike Shank just for a second, just to introduce him and his epicness. By the way, we should probably describe from a visual standpoint what these guys look like. Oh yeah, we, kind of we this is a podcast. I forgot we have to. We have to yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, so <laughs> I'll explain. If you've never seen who Little Stevie is, uh, check out a YouTube video of Little Stevie. That is what uh, Mark looks like. Uh, he has an it just. He has two different hairstyles going on. In the front, he has like a feathered, almost like mid two thousands, like like the hair that was going on with the flip up. But hidden in the back, he has a Billy Ray Cyrus mullet. Yeah, it's a power mullet. It's a power mullet. It's it's a power mullet, and then he's got like like goggles, not glasses. Yeah, like thick, thick, big glasses, and he's got a like a goatee. Uh, he's a he's a lanky fella. Mm-hmm. He's got to be like over six foot he's he's relatively thin but he's not fit he's just no. thin. <laughs> um, but yeah he's a lanky guy definitely stands out in the crowd he's got a really narrow skull too by the way yeah um and contrast that with mike shank who has like what would you describe his hairstyle as it's vaguely long okay just picture okay these two are what jay and I mean, silent he looks bob like a roadie they both look like roadies actually. They do look like roadies this is what jay and silent bob really are even their demeanor it's exactly jay and silent bob you have tall yeah. jay who's just running his mouth all the fucking time and mm-hmm. then you've got short bob with the who's just like chubby with he's got like a, a mustache got long hair doesn't really say too much it's jay and silent bob basically um, wow you damn i hadn't thought of that there you, you go really hit the nail on the head there so there's your reference. <laughs> yeah, um, if you put some uh, Thin Mints in the freezer, you have your mind blown twice today. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have no Thin Mints. Yeah. <laughs> my freezer is caked up with ice, so I got to scrape that shit. It's <laughs> leaking on the floor, man. Oh, man. Um, so, cut from Mike Shank. Uh, really, all he's there to do is say, uh, Yeah, I used, to, I used to party with, my, or with Mark. Um, I've known him <laughs> since we were kids. That is and perfect. I know, it's practiced. Um, that's really all he's there to say for a minute um so then we cut to them record (laughs) oh man that was good thank you uh (laughs) thank you then we cut to uh the recording of a radio drama called the creeps and this i don't know what the fuck this is like this is madness so it's a, it's a room full of actors, and they're doing the radio play thing where you have all your all your actors, all your talent in the same room together, recording at the same time. And what's amazing about all the dialogue, and this pops up a couple times in this movie, is that you can hear Mark. Yeah. Like like other people are speaking it, but you you can hear Mark Borchardt, and I guess that's that's kind of a good thing in the sense that it's like a signature. Where it's like oh, he has an identifiable voice. It's not good. No. But, but I can tell it came from him. But oh, there's, there's a, a... What's your line? Do you have a line? Because my one of my favorite lines from this movie, I have a couple, but it's definitely from this scene. Is it surprise? No. <laughs> uh, it's when a lady is uh, going back and forth with a guy, and she goes, mm-hmm. take a motherfucking wild guess. And just her delivery, I'm like, yeah, that he wrote that. Take a motherfucking yeah. wild guess. Yeah, that that came directly from Mark Mark Borchardt's brain. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, we get to see some actors go back and forth, like just spitting dialogue at each other. Um, we we get introduced to the thespian of the group. Um, Mr. Was it Robert Richard Jorge or something? Is he the older guy? The the yeah. the, the chubbier older guy? 
Yeah. Oh, he is a thespian. He, he is, is a thespian. That man has taught himself a drama class or two. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he he is uh, Brian Cox from Adaptation. <laughs> people find love. The people lose love. Fuck. He's that guy. <laughs> Fuck. Um. So the one the one quote I wanted to throw out there from from the radio drama recording. And I think this is interspersed, like between uh, footage of him talking in the car, and actual like candid footage of him during the recording session with a beer in his hand. By the of way, of course, yes. Um, he's he's ruminating on the drive home, basically after the recording of the rod- radio drama. And he's like, "I was smoking dope and drinking beer. I realized that I wasn't even a director." And it's like, "No, Mark. No, you weren't." <laughs> basically, he's he he actively expresses frustration over the performances of the actors like he he knew they weren't delivering like he he was unhappy with how things were unfolding but he was totally disengaged from the process in the moment and it made for a product he wasn't happy with yeah which we'll we'll see happens more than once in his life (laughs) (laughs) um by the way we're not we're not i'm not trying to make fun of this guy because I mean, no, he's accomplished more than God, you and no. I have. As because as, I'm not a filmmaker. Uh, he made a fucking. He's made a fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not we're not downplaying this at all. Like, oh, it's so fucking easy. I don't know what his problem is. We're not making fun of him. This is this is a. It's a tough situation to be in and try to come up with a movie. Like it, it, it's tough. There there are there are so many layers to this struggle. Mm-hmm. It's not just the making of the movie. There's. No the bills that we're about to get to there's the family situation there's he has three kids <laughs> damn it oh my goodness you met you ruined it because i got to this i'm sorry I'm we sorry. got to that part and i'm like oh that, my that god is quite the reveal he that has quite three kids i'm like oh look at him he's such a good uncle like he's leaning down to give the girl like a oh no. <laughs> yeah i'm like oh he's got a daughter i'm like wow and then somebody says he's got three kids i'm like mother fuck how's he have three kids <laughs> But we'll get there, Jesus. Yeah, we, we'll get there. But there, there are many layers to this struggle, and what's more, something that absolutely cannot be glossed over is uh, this: the filming of this documentary was in the mid to late nineties. Uh, everything he's shooting is on sixteen millimeter, so all the editing and sound had to be done analog. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is pre-digital. So this is a man trying to make a film using, you know, by today's standards, like, difficult to use, somewhat antiquated equipment. He's cutting fucking film to edit it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the imagine this fella if he was born 20, 30 years later. Good point. Uh, Glad you brought that up. It's, it's something that we'll have to come back to because I don't want to get into it just yet. Yeah. But that's something to keep in the back of your mind when we're talking about all of his logistical struggles because, like... Man, if he just had a fucking handy cam or a phone, uh, so much of the shit could just be handled for him. Um, he wouldn't have to stress about all of it, especially since he's literally the only competent person on the set most of the time. <laughs> the one main actor he has that he does the kitchen scene with, that guy, I appreciate that guy. He, that guy has a beautiful temperament about him where it's like he he's a trooper. Yeah. Like like he, he will he will do stuff for you if you ask. <laughs> if he had worked for if he had worked for Kubrick, he would have been like, "This has been this is one of the best productions I've ever worked for. This is fantastic." <laughs> that um, would have been so beautiful to like do a making of like The Shining or something, and like 
cut from interview with Shelley Duvall to him. <laughs> Shelley Duvall. She's like, it was a nightmare. <laughs> and, even, and then he's like, oh, it's great. I love it here. <laughs> I remember uh, I read that Jack Nicholson, when he was dating Ange- Angelica Houston at the time, she said that he came home, he came back one day after filming and just collapsed on the bed and slept for like 12 hours. Like he, he was so exhausted, he didn't get a shower, didn't even say hi. He just went, boom. And this guy would have been like, this is the greatest. I just love working with Stanley Kubrick. It's great. <laughs> yeah, Tom. shout out to Tom Schimmels. He's a stand-up guy. Shout out, Tom. Uh, <laughs> so our opening credits, which, my God, we're just getting there. Um, opening credits, uh, this scene always makes me laugh uh, for all the wrong reasons, of course. Um, it plays over Mark Borchardt opening his bills. Uh, so he's, op- he's cutting open the mail. And every single article of mail that he opens is a bill of some sort, whether it be a credit card debt of some sort, a phone bill, insurance payments, all sorts of stuff. And he's rambling about making movies and like how, how life kind of sucks. And then he keeps rattling off these number figures that's like, oh, my God, this guy's financial situation must be just complete hell. Um, <laughs> and then he opens a letter he reads it out loud. He says, "Your AT and T Universal card has arrived. Oh, kick fucking ass! I got a Mastercard. <laughs> Life is kind of cool sometimes." I could hear and this is this, this. It's amazing, just the timing where he goes from like talking about how dire his financial situation is to oh, kick fucking ass. <laughs> I've got another credit card. I could hear my mom in the background going, "Oh my." Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! Oh, oh gosh! Oh, that's not good! Oh gosh! Oh, sweetie, honey, wait. no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, following this, uh, we drive out to the community college, and we're putting up flyers for a casting call because Mark Borchart. I think he's. This is when this is the stage of the film wherein he's he's dead set on doing a film by the name of Northwestern, which, to date, I'm still not entirely certain what the premise of the film is we see excerpts of it sprinkled throughout the documentary but it's an unfinished film and i don't quite know what the intention was behind it uh it's odd that he would pick northwestern because they're a midwestern state if yeah anything. I, that <laughs> or that was not lost on me <laughs> north they're not northwestern uh north north central even i'd give him uh north central united states um yeah uh, it's basically just a bunch of teenagers drinking and smoking pot. Uh, that's, that's all the, the footage that's I saw. All the footage is is teenagers drinking and smoking pot. Yeah. Um. Well, he does make reference a few times to this ideal of his. He has that. Um. At one point, someone does ask him to articulate it better, because he expresses it several times, but nobody seems to understand it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't understand it, but he does make reference to like the frontier. Yeah. And, and when I think frontier, I think, you know, the Western territories and stuff. So maybe it's an allusion to that. I don't know. He, he was saying, it was interesting, his, his quote was somewhere along the lines of, like, people didn't, like, what did people do back then? They just drank. They drank, and they drank, yeah. and they yeah. drank, and that's all they did. There was nothing else to do. And people still came up with stuff, I think was his idea. And he's like, that's what this is. He's like, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to drink, and I'm going to come up with something. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. That I'm guessing. It's an incomplete film for a reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> so at this point, uh, we, I think we get introduced to Mom 
and uh, his brothers, uh, his older brothers, I believe, Alex and Chris. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't write down their names. They. Uh, Ale- Alex, I think, is the one with the glasses. Is that the one with the Hooters and, shirt? Yeah, and then Chris is the one with the bug eyes, with the dead stare. Yeah, the, and and the the Howie Mandel hair, Howie Mandel from like the early nineties. Oh, Howie Mandel. I was gonna say, now <laughs> <Howie> Mandel? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, they all talk about the fact that like Mark was a little bit of a weird kid, but he's been into f- movies since he was 12, uh, mostly horror films. And you get a sense that mom is like quietly supportive for the most part. You know, she has reservations for fucking sure. Um, but his brothers seem either dismissive or like actively discouraging of his, his interest in film. Uh, so right from the get-go, it's like, hmm, maybe not the best living situation. Uh, we get no. a few more details about that later on, but for now it's just like, hmm, he's got two shit-heel brothers who... I would say uh, I, I like his mom. She's she's really nice. She seemed like She's more of an, an enabler than anything else. I, I wouldn't say yeah. that she's super helpful. Uh, the brothers are not supportive, really. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's not a great... It's, it's not a positive environment for creativity or progress. Absolutely. Um, you're you're dead on about the mom, though. Um, as as I don't know, warm-hearted as she seems to be, uh, you know, you gotta cut the cord at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we go to a pitch meeting, and this is where we get to see Mark Borchardt in his element. Oh, because uh, the man does have a fucking silver tongue. I was gonna I say he's doing that. a Troy Duffy. He's he's like, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Yeah, like he's. Oh yeah, no, he can talk. He's spitting like, hot he fire. He can cut a. He can cut a. Yeah, a spit hot fire. He spit a hot fire. <laughs> like he, he about had me convinced. I'm like, well, shit, dude. I think this thing's gonna go off without a hitch. <laughs> yeah, shut up and take my money. Fuck. <laughs> 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 you on Vimo? <laughs> uh. <laughs> but yeah, he he conducts this pitch meeting and he's talking about this film with, uh, I believe it's a couple of financiers of some sort. Uh, he has a guy who is. His on-screen title, uh, I wrote it down later, uh, is, like, the prop master. He's, like, effects and props guy. And he seems to be fairly experienced in the film industry. And then we have, like, a a production manager guy, so a logistical kind of guy. Then we have, like, a casting director guy. And all these people seem to have some experience in the film industry to some degree. Uh, I don't know if any of them is going to be directly financing the film, but this is Mark trying to collect... Trying to put a team together to get the shit done. Well, I'm, I'm assuming these guys probably work uh, with or for the university because he was definitely at a community college. I think you're right. Yeah, he was dropping yeah. stuff flyers at the community college. He actually does work at uh, the University of uh, is it Wisconsin Milwaukee Milwaukee Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, he actually goes there to splice up the footage. So I think he's yeah he's probably working with some kind of associate professors. Mm. I would assume. So, so cut in between this, uh, we get introduced to Ken Keen. Who has oh, Hulk Hogan's haircut? I fucking love Ken Keen. <laughs> he's he he he's what really drove it home for me. This was like when I saw this group, I'm like, that's I'm not gonna say their names. That's my buddy X, and that's buddy Y. I'm like, the, like mm-hmm. if I had had motivation and been taller, I might have tried to pull off something like this with these two guys easily. I did this shit on a very very small scale, like when I was younger. 
Um, I mean, I still do this shit on a very small scale from time to time. I mean, I could, in some ways, I can think of this podcast as an example <laughs> of me me still trying to do this shit. Again, I'm I'm a risk averse person though, so we keep it small. <laughs> we keep it small here. We, this also costs wanna... this costs um, hopes and dreams to do, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean this this cost what a thirty dollar Amazon mic. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cheap, and then the storage space. There you go. Um, so yeah, I I can identify with that. Like I I used to do that shit on the playground in like grade school, where I'd like get everybody together and I'd like try to throw together a game or like imagine a story that everybody could participate in on the fly. I used to do that. And I'd get fr- I'd get frustrated with people because I'd be like, "You're ruining my vision." They're like, "I don't know what your fucking vision is." <laughs> like you're out of the game. I'm gonna kill your character off. <laughs> I actually remember. So I can relate. I actually remember very specifically a time when I, uh, I had a box of runts, and I was with my my next door neighbors, my younger brother, and I doubt he'll remember this, but it was like, let's act like these are drugs, and we try to entice people to take the drugs, and then we arrest them. <laughs> and then I was like eating it. I'm like to an imaginary person, I'm like you want some drugs, and then we would we would, like beat them up. Uh, you, you bust them. Definitely a big Walker Texas Ranger fan when I was kid. So oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Did you have stretchy jeans so you could bust out those kicks? <sighs> I had cowboy boots, I'll tell you that much. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Like I I, I, okay. I I'm with you. So, like to stress the point further, the the thing that jumped out at me about Ken Keen during his introduction here is that he mentions that he's a couple years younger than Mark and he's known he's known him since he was like 12 or 14 years old. Yeah. So Mark was like the ringleader. He had his shithead friends <laughs> that he'd get together and they'd do stupid shit together. So Mark was usually the ringleader and Ken Keen would like just do whatever he said because Mark is the older guy. Mark is the guy with the camera. Let's fucking do some stupid shit. So they would make these movies and uh, th- we get to see some really great clips of them actually. Yeah. Uh, one of them's called The, the More the Scarier uh, from 1980. And it's it's black and white, I believe. It's basically like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre style film. Yeah, um, a little raw, more. It's like Night of the Living Dead meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, we'll get there. Um, but <laughs> apparently, they made like three of them. Yeah, and this this like made me like almost tear up because I was like, I did this shit. Yeah. <laughs> like this is exactly what I used to do. Because I mean, I've mentioned it a couple times on the show. Like the running gag throughout all, all the films I made in like high school and stuff was. Uh, People would always die in the bathroom because it was a lot easier to clean up the mess yeah. off tile, and we didn't want to stay in the carpet at my friend's apartment. <laughs> so, so, like, almost every video we made was, like, it was either a gun or a drug deal gone bad. Oh, yeah. And then somebody would inevitably end up going in the bathroom and getting shot. <laughs> and we'd come up with new ways to to spray blood. The, the most... Uh, the most epic thing we did was we rigged up a, a pesticide sprayer, like with a pressurized hose to go, <laughs> like oh, spray that's, blood. Like that's pretty good. Yeah, that's smart. We cut a hole in a shirt and like sprayed it through a tube. It's pretty awesome. That's pretty like, good. good. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, they uh, they made these films together, and Ken Keen, I guess, is like just a fixture on any production Mark's ever done. He's just he's just this little toady. <laughs> um, and then we go out location scouting. So Mark's rolling along. Uh, he's he's really dead set on getting this Northwestern film in production. Uh, he's doing location scouting. He has something picked out that he wants to... He's picturing it as like kind of a haunted ha- house or a haunted mansion of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, he's rambling about f- movies, and it's kind of interesting because you get the sense that it's like, oh, 
he's not completely full of shit. Like he actually knows films. Like he's referencing classic films. He like he has he has some background, like an an education in film. He has a lot of books. Did you see all the books on his shelf? Yeah. It's no, he takes it very seriously. He does. Well, yeah, he takes it seriously. Um <laughs> He takes it as seriously as he can. Uh yeah, I was I was surprised to see like all those books on there. Like he has an idea of what he's doing. Like, and you can definitely tell from the way he's directing people and the way he's positioning the camera and even the finished product. You're like, okay, yeah, he has a grasp of what he's like a grasp of what he's doing much better than I do. I can tell you that much. Um, yeah, well, it's the best way I heard it described, and it comes up in just a minute here. Is uh, he has like a primeval understanding of filmmaking. Where it's not it's not like learned. It's not purely wrapped in, in technique and like traditional filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's just he has this hazy image, like a silhouette of of how you get this shit done. So some of the things that come out of his mouth, it's like it's almost like that's the expectation. Where it's like, oh, this this is what a filmmaker says or does, so that's what I will do without entirely understanding. Um, I do have confidence in him as a filmmaker, but uh, I feel like maybe he should just be a camera guy. I was about to say the same thing. I'm like, his he cannot yeah. write a script. That's that's the thing. No, that, he shouldn't be writing. No. He shouldn't be acting. He's not a director. He doesn't know how to direct. I mean, the camera loves he, him. He doesn't provide he doesn't provide direction. For what he's doing, if he yeah, if he was the DP or something like that, like he would be really well cuz Honestly, for his look and the style of films that he's going for, he has the look for a character in one of those films. Cause he yeah, well, I mean, they come from him, so yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, but his his shots, like he, the images that he puts together are actually somewhat striking. Like, I don't know if it's just the grainy quality of the black and white, but like his compositions, his lighting, like there is something there. Yeah. So I feel like if you took the human element out of it, like if you if you distanced him from the actors in some regard and just had him focus on making good images, he might actually be pretty fucking good. Yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, during his location scout, he references films like Manhattan and The Seventh Seal. Yeah. And it's funny because he actually speaks directly to the documentary crew and says, like, have you seen those movies, man? And like, I think you hear a no. And it's like, oh. <laughs> like, really? He did drop The Seventh Seal on them. I was actually surprised with that. I'm like, holy shit. Have you seen The Seventh yeah. Seal? Well, I, I think he did go to some form of film school. I don't know, like, to what degree, but... Uh, he he does have an education in film to some extent, and he does have a passion for film, and that speaks volumes about like like how far it's taken him, just like pure passion. But this is where we're introduced to Dean Allen, who was one of the cooler guys, I think anyway. Uh, he was the one that I think was he wearing dog tags or something. I don't um, remember which one Dean was. Uh, he is the props and effects guy, um, and he has. He seems like one of the more grounded individuals in the documentary. So we're introduced to him at this point in it. And he has a heart for Mark because he sees what he sees is he sees a, a guy with gumption. Like he sees a young man who has a dream and wants to get it done no matter what. And like his Mark, like Dean's uh, attitude here is, is really refreshing because like he kind of laughs at the ideas. Like he, he sees that, yeah, I don't think I don't have that much confidence confidence in his competency as a filmmaker 
But he's like, the way he phrases it, it's like, yeah, I can give up 10 weekends to, you know, help yeah. someone fulfill a fucking dream. I remember that guy saying that. Yeah, he was he was very cool. And he's in the background of a lot of scenes in this. And you can tell that's like, that's his attitude. It's like, I know this isn't going to get me anything, but it means so much more to this guy than it does to me. So I'll do it. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we cut to another production meeting and <laughs> Mark is doing, he's doing the frames with his hands and he's like talking up the scenes he's going to put together. He talks to the, as North of Northwestern is like the next great American film, man, <laughs> like American actors in an American production. Um, um but then we get to the cast reading and this was a really interesting scene because I guess these were the people that arrived for the casting call and we get some footage of folks reading Mark's script back and forth and they're going over the scene where it's like a it sounds like a a marital spat or something mm-hmm. where it's a, a man it's a man and a woman and the man is basically yelling at the woman for making long distance phone calls to her her shithead brother or whatever yeah <laughs> Um, we we go through several actors doing these lines back and forth, and at one point, Mark, we cut to him and Mike sitting outside, and Mark is expressing frustration. He's like, "Man, they, they're they're butchering my words, man!" Like, and, and then he jumps in there. And what did you think of his acting performance? Not very good. Uh, a little over the top for my taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen, of course, but. <laughs> I'll show you. I'll send you a video of the worst acting I've ever seen. It, it it's a it's a line reading by a guy, and it's it's pretty funny. But yeah, not that great. Um, actually, is it, the is it from Batman Forever? No, no. Um, <laughs> it's it's for something. Is it from Troll Two? No, it's not from Troll Two. I'm surprised you actually <laughs> didn't pick that one. Uh, the documentary for Troll Two. Um, no, actually, the people that are uh, that he's uh, watching are actually doing a decent job. The actors that he's actually done the casting call for. Mm-hmm. But he's but he feels, he's not liking it. Yeah, he's he's distraught. Like he's he feels that none of these actors get what he's trying to say here, and so he he jumped in there as an actor because he felt that nobody else was doing it. And I I think this is a very revealing moment, and I think this is again one of his biggest failings as a filmmaker. It's that one of the one of the quotes I remember um, from my my friend who actually is a filmmaker is that part of filmmaking is uh, learning to trust is learning that your fingers can't possibly touch every facet of the production. Um, so you need to learn to surround yourself with people who you can trust and then actively trust them to do what you, what you need them to do. Mm-hmm. And then the film will find itself and seeing a guy try to be the DP, the director, the lead actor, the writer, probably the fucking caterer (laughs) like (laughs) trying to trying to see a guy do all that like speaks to his insecurities i guess it's like well also he has nobody else to do it that that's the problem this is true he's the only one doing it he's the only one that cares no one else there's nobody else there's no one else there's no one else (laughs) (laughs) his whole life is just in a manila envelope there's no one else you're gonna get shot in the head by some dude who's about to get shot in the head uh, nobody <laughs> knows. Also going to get shot. Who's also going to get shot in the head? <laughs> the amount of headshots in the last five minutes of that movie. Wow. Uh yeah. Um, yeah. It's The Departed. If you're not aware. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoiler alert! Everybody dies. Yeah. Uh, so, cut to the airport. Uh, this was an interesting scene. 
very interesting. I don't know if he did this just for the documentary crew or if this is actually something he does, but if it is, you know, I tip my hat to the guy. That's kind of fucking cool. So Mark Borchardt is parked at the airport, and the reason he does this is because uh, because there's, there's nothing out there. Uh, this is in the age before smartphones. Uh, we saw his laptop earlier in the movie. It's not equipped to handle this. <laughs> no. Um, he's trying to get some writing done, and to force himself to, to do it, he sits in his freezing cold car in the parking lot of an airport and just writes until he gets shit done. Uh, so this whole scene is just him sitting in a car talking to himself with a pen and paper and just writing. And it's interesting because... Uh, I didn't notice until this time, this this particular viewing, but he has, like, little props in his car, like, on his dashboard, like, with little, like, number markings and Xs. So I guess he's, like, tracking his progress while he's working. I was like, damn, like, that's, that's, that's work ethic. I mean, it doesn't, apparently it doesn't strike him all the time, but, no. <laughs> like, to, to do that, like, that's, that's something that I don't find within myself too often think the most recent occasion i actually did something like that was i went to the atrium at a museum to write a best man speech like a like two days before the wedding oh, nice. <laughs> but it was like this has to get done so i'm going to remove myself from all my comforts and just like this is all i got i have a coffee a table and a writing t- and a writing tool gotta get done um i think we meet uncle bill at this point oh, uncle, uncle bill, bill is Uncle Bill is like crushingly depressing. Yeah, um, he's he is he is so sad. So we we learned some stuff about um we learned some stuff about uh, Mark. Uh, I get he actually dropped out of school. Uh, yeah, he dropped out right. dropped out of high school. Uh, he was in the army. I don't know if he finished his time in the army. I'm assuming he did, but more or less to like kind of straighten himself out. And they're like, it didn't really help. And like one of the things is he's kind of aggressive. And like you were saying, like he can just kind of command the room a little bit like he has that ability um but he also has no money like he said he has no like is no money he has like no income whatsoever any money he has that from working goes to child support i would assume uh goes to child support and he actually mentions his phone bill a couple of times yeah that's a big one actually when he's that first time we see him going through his bills he does mention that it's like oh i just borrowed gas money from my ma yeah it's like oh man like shit yeah so you you are your house is not in order (laughs) yes and then we meet Um, uncle bill yeah uncle bill um also needs to be described from a physical standpoint because he he is a photographer's dream um just like if you wanted to capture middle america i guess like just take uncle bill out to a field or something just if you just Um, i think if you just got him in his trailer like if you just where his tv was if you just stood back where that tv was and took a picture of him you're like wow i I, oh yeah you you could get some gorgeous photos of this guy yeah he he has lived a life um sadly we're seeing we're introduced to him towards the end of it very very towards Um, the end of it yeah um he's he's like a skeletal figure he's got like really bad posture his skin is gray um and he's he's just unkempt and he wants to die as far as i can tell he Um, is he has given up he does not want to be around yeah his his wife his wife died at some point and you can tell that that was it for him like as soon as she was gone he just gave up 
and it's really sad that we have to be introduced to this guy and see nothing of him but like him steeped in sadness um but he has some decent moments in this that are very human and heartfelt yeah it's like they're few and far between but it's like uncle bill seems like he was an interesting guy and it's sad that he's dead well yeah he i i we can, I mean, it's no spoiler alert. We find out yeah, that yeah. Um, Uncle Bill, who I actually have an Uncle Bill. Uh, actually, he just passed away. Um, he was actually, I think, maybe a, a professor or a teacher. Like, he was very articulate. Scholar. He was he was a scholar. Yeah, um, is what his, his brother, uh, Mark's dad, says. Um, he, yeah, he was very smart, uh, very articulate. Um, and when you, when you meet him, you're just like, it's a, sh- like... You would think that this guy has just been like drinking for the past thirty years, and like he has no brain, like he has no like nothing going on up there anymore. But come to find out that he's just he's just old. Uh, it's he's kind just of, shut down. Yeah, like he's he's just given up. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, I I believe I believe uh, Mark's dad when he says he was a scholar because he actually is like reciting poems and singing songs throughout the movie. And yeah. they're not bad. It's just his delivery of them <laughs> is horrible, because uh, there's like no, there's no intent behind it. It's just it's just words. I watched this movie with the subtitles on for the first time, and it's like, wow, if you wrote that down, that would be pretty good. But because it's coming out of his mouth, it's terrible. It's very <laughs> chilling, is what I found. It is. It's it very is. chilling. Well, almost all of them are just about him missing his wife. And you could tell that um, Mark really looks up, like. He looks up to him for a couple reasons. One, I think yeah. he looks up to him, he looks up to him intellectually. I think that he admires yes. him, and I think his dad even yeah. mentions that he he's always admired him. The second thing is that Uncle Bill's got money. Yeah, um, that first point I think is important because, as we'll learn in greater detail later on, Mark's home situation wasn't the best. Uh, clearly, he and his dad are complete opposites when it comes to like ambition in life. Yeah, uh, and so. Bill being a scholar of some sort, like being a poet or a singer, of course Mark's gonna look to him for inspiration because yeah. he's a fellow creative in a in a environment that doesn't nurture that particular. No. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is a, it um, is but, a, it is an environment that tries to suffocate that. Absolutely, um, but that second point uh, is why we're interest, introduced to Uncle Bill when we are, and that's because Mark is trying to convince him to help finance the production of Northwestern. Yeah. Um, and he does, in fact, succeed, I believe. But uh, it's something that plays out over the course of the film. But I don't think Mark is a bad person. Um, when you see him and Bill together, there is genuine, there's genuine love and appreciation there. Like, they have an interesting dynamic. They actually, funny enough, I mentioned uh, Ed Wood earlier, the, the movie, not the actual person, but the Tim Burton movie, um, the way uh, Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi's relationship plays out in that film is very similar to, to Mark and Uncle Bill, where it's like this young, young, young wide-eyed man with this, this old guy who's kind of at the end of his rope, and the young man does whatever he can to you know, renew some of that spark. Um, and, Mark- and there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of instances where Mark is hearing nothing but negativity come out of Bill, and he's just throwing nothing but positivity back at him, and it, they have this interplay that it's... It's really it's really neat to watch. I, I thought it was at first. I'm like borrowing money from relatives, not a good idea. But as you see their their relationship kind of uh, unfold like throughout the film, you're like, oh, like he's he's actually like he he does need money, 
and he's also asking for somebody who can who can actually give him money. He's not asking somebody to put up their car for collateral or something like that. This is a, I mean, he's retired. He has quite a bit of money, and he's also like, you want to be a part of this. He's trying to make. He's trying to include him in it. He tries to put him in the movie. He puts him in the movie, and he's yeah. He's actively trying to get him a part of the movie. But he's also trying to get money from him at the same time. And yeah, I don't at the same time, it's like you can't deny the fact that he is trying to squeeze some money out of a relative. <laughs> and I don't think that he has... I think he has complete intentions of paying it back. I don't see him just like trying to, to bleed people dry. He's not a sociopath. He's not just no, trying to, no, to, to borrow money. So. And like he's... Yeah, he's probably spending some of it on beer. Honestly, he's spending it on beer. Um, <laughs> but he's also... But he's not like just spending it on beer. He's trying to get shit done. And we're not seeing like... How much he's actually working? Because I'm—I feel like he's somewhat supportive. Uh, his mom's somewhat supporting him, but he's also working, and we do—we do see him working. They're not great jobs, and he's been what delivering yeah. newspapers for ten to fifteen yeah. years. Yeah, his brother mentions that, um, and again, that speaks to that—that that, uh, not wanting to be one of them, kind of that—that that mindset. It's like I won't have a traditional nine to five. I'll do something. I'll do something else just to do something else. I get it. Um, funny enough, uh, <laughs> Mark tries to use photos of the lead the lead actress that he he wants to have in his film to convince Uncle yeah. Bill to give him money. Yeah. <laughs> and Uncle Bill is receptive to that. Um, and this is uh, actually where we meet Tom Beach, the uh, production manager who we we want to work on Northwestern, and he is a true fucking professional. He's very organized. He's talking shot lists. He's talking casting calls. Like he, he knows how to make a film. Yeah, and and uh, I think Dean is the one who expresses that sentiment of they're both filmmakers, but one has a more primeval understanding of the process, and the other one's more textbook. And it was really interesting to see to see the two of them in the same room together, where you have this guy who has log books and like color coded shit and where he's he's organized he yeah. knows how to get the shit done then you have mark who's just like yeah whatever man we'll get it done excuse me while i take this beer <laughs> like crush it <laughs> on my head <laughs> so at this point we have our fourth production meeting for northwestern <laughs> and uh we hit a bit of a speed bump in the fact that we have no money <laughs> so uh Mark very hurriedly decides to pivot away from Northwestern and then goes back to an old production, uh, something that's been on his shelf for quite a while that he's been trying to finish, a film by the name of Colvin. Um, Which I support. And, uh, I support a, this decision. I, I understand his intent here. He's trying to keep busy, um, and he also has a financial motivation here. Um, it's grossly ambitious. <laughs> it's like it's like wrongheaded in the extreme, but there is logic there. Basically, his idea is he wants to make the other film so he can finance Northwestern. Yeah. So he wants to take a half-finished product, take it to completion, get it sold, and then use that money, parlay that money into getting Northwestern done. Uh, of course, the major caveat there is that you need to make money. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no guarantee that you will. In fact, it's almost entirely certain that you won't. I'm actually so, surprised uh, a racer head doesn't come up at all. Uh, I, I I just had a, I had a feeling that it was going to come up after watching this for a little bit. I'm like, he's going to talk about a racer head sometime. But uh, you know, I, I would imagine he's familiar with David Lynch because I haven't seen that many of David Lynch films. But uh, 
as far as I understand, um, like horrible things hiding in plain sight in like typical American environments is a like a theme in David Lynch's work. Mm-hmm. Like a, I forget what film it was, but basically like the opening shot is like suburbia, and then the camera keeps tilting down. And it goes all the way into the earth, and there's like bugs and horrible like maggots and shit. Mm-hmm. So it's like th- this is suburbia, but it's rotten. Um, and I could totally see Mark Borchardt identifying with that sentiment in some regard. But he has a pretty, f- <laughs> he has a pretty good quote here. He says, "I have absolutely no money." I have no hope of getting any money until Colvin is finished. Aesthetically, I'm not ready. The script is not ready. The casting hasn't even begun. The locations are scant at best. Are you crazy? That's 11 days from now. <laughs> so basically, he's come to the realization that Northwestern's not going to happen. So let's do Coven. Um, and this is around the time that... Uh, we, we get some interviews with his family and they talk about some stuff that you already mentioned that he did, he did a stint in the military didn't work out didn't work out and and his brother believes that his main asset is his mouth yeah um, and I don't argue that yeah. <laughs> um, so we get an interview between I think it's Mark and Mike Shank and they're standing outside and the documentary crew are just kind of filming them at like in front of like a junkyard or something and there's this really cool moment where uh, whoever's behind the camera at that moment asks, what is Coven? And without a moment's hesitation, Mark just spits out, 35-minute direct market thriller shot on 16-millimeter black and white reversal. Yeah. And it's like, wow, you worked out your elevator pitch. <laughs> like, like, he just had it in the holster. I was like, damn, that's impressive. I should do that because actually, like, the the podcast meetup that i went to like somebody actually asked me what's your elevator elevator pitch and i didn't have one Mm. but i just like bullshit something i i i didn't do bad but i didn't do great oh and the the plot of coven apparently it's an alcoholic goes to a meeting but the people there suck and are evil and i was like huh mark have you ever done that (laughs) (laughs) are you speaking from the heart here (laughs) i mean it kind of sounds like the it sounds like the invitation a little bit like it it, you go into an aa meeting and it turns out like maybe you're in a cult or something like that spoiler alert i haven't seen the invitation it was spoiled for me so you know fuck you guys too (laughs) (laughs) well again that speaks to his mentality where it's like it's it's not uncommon especially for young folks young folks to look at like any institution is being, you know, bullshit and made up of phonies and stuff. It's like any sort of order is is wrong because I'm right. I have all the answers. Um, but this is where he has his his wonderful quote about last night. I was so drunk I was calling Morocco, man. <laughs> was I believed him too? <laughs> oh, yeah. Was that? I thought he was referring back to a while, like a long time ago. But was that? Just I the, don't think so. Oh I think goodness. that was the night before. My goodness, buddy. Yeah, he was so drunk he called Morocco and was trying to get a reservation at the Hilton. <laughs> and then the the best part of that quote though is that he's he's like, I think he just ends it with. But that's what happens, man. Jeez. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's normal. Fuck. <laughs> uh, so we get to see some footage of of what we had of Coven at this point in time. And I think this is, what, 1996 or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all black and white. It's, it's actually aesthetically not. 
it's pleasing. Yeah, like, it looks like, decent. He was on to something. Fun. I th- honestly, I think he was on to something. He might have had yeah, something decent even, here. Yeah, and I, I actually should just go ahead and watch it because I think it is like thirty-five minutes long, and I have the DVD, so I do te- technically own Coven. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, do I don't think any, the money went to Mark, but <laughs> sorry. That's unfortunate. Um, but I think he needs to sell like 4,500 copies of Coven on VHS to finance Northwestern. It's like, dude, you're, you're not going to do that. No. <laughs> like, it's like, I, you know, if I was in the room, I'd, I'd, if I was his friend even, it's like, dude, I, I don't know if that's a good idea. I think that you can <laughs> confidently sell 20 and you're topping out at about 200 topping yeah, out I at mean, 200 you're you're gonna get your friends and family maybe a couple of people that are curious at the at the screening which as far as i understand you only got one of like it's not like getting a theatrical run it's just getting a screening in a town yeah um yeah um at this point though i think mark actually gets uncle bill to front the bill yeah um he actually succeeds um, Uncle Bill doesn't seem to uh, beat up about it, but you know he's pretty apathetic. So <laughs> yeah, he it, it it's almost like he's taking advantage of. It feels like he's taking advantage of a guy who doesn't really have much. He doesn't have much will, like much will to live. He's just like kind of exactly. like if I like, you know, yeah, he would honestly going to die. The money's going to go somewhere anyway. Whatever. Yeah, he's kind of like. He's reluctant. He's very reluctant, but he's kind of at the. I mean, he's like, well, whatever. Like, what? What yeah. else? What else am I gonna do? Well, with it? what's interesting is like the the lady at the bank, like the person who actually works there. She, you can tell she's like aware of what's happening, and she's trying to give them like lead. She's leading them with language, like how to actually get this done through the proper channels. He's like, he's giving and him like, the money, but he can't pull out the money without his permission. So it's almost like having a, all, kind of like a joint checking, just like a three th- th- uh, $3,000 joint checking account that you can only pull out money if it's okay with Uncle Bill. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is, um, yeah. <laughs> so what's what's kind of cute, though, here, well, not cute, but it's interesting, is uh, on the on the ride home from the bank, Uncle Bill's, you know, fatalistic as always. Uh, but Dad, of all people, is actually kind of supportive of Mark. He's he's saying like you know Charles Lindbergh took chances and it's like Columbus took a chance you gotta have faith. It's like so Dad is a man of faith. Dad typically shits on his son <laughs> for for trying to entertain his you know creative drive. But in this instance, I guess now that like there's a financial investment, now that there's actual stakes, I guess he's encouraging him and. I, he, this comes up more than once in the film where he's he's actively supporting him at this point because he's recognizing the fact that it's an endeavor that's being made and you can't just turn back from that like it's it's in your best interest as a person to just go through with it even if it fails i think maybe the documentary crew are having a bit of uh, an effect on this i think you're right like i said if a camera's in the room people tend to act different i think um, they're I'm sure he would would have been you know pretty unhappy with him if he didn't have a camera in the car with him i don't know the circumstances behind the documentary crew i'm assuming that they read about like read about him trying to get this movie together in the newspaper it's been going on for like there's a, i think he's got a couple of articles in the local paper about him mm-hmm. so they're like oh well, let's go let's see if we can do a documentary about him and probably helping him you know get financing from uncle bill 
No, apparently, I I checked his like Wikipedia, and apparently he has like a fellowship at the one of the colleges in his town or something. Oh, nice. So, he, so yeah, he's he's a fixture in that particular neighborhood or wherever. Um, so now we actually go out and try to do some filming, and this was one of the more interesting scenes in the whole movie. Uh, so the night before, the night before, good job, Mark. Uh, we're making phone calls to to everyone in the phone book like everybody he knows trying to ask do you have like two hours to film tomorrow it's like dude you don't you don't do that like you, you can't give an you can't give someone like six hours notice to, to go out filming everybody's gonna say no to that um but he apparently got together a decent group of people uh in, i don't think mom goes on this trip but he's definitely got her like on like like on deck to head out into the woods so it is it, we're in wisconsin so there's snow everywhere uh and we're wearing our black cultist robes and there's about eight people and we march off into the woods with a 16 millimeter camera with a wooden tripod attached to it uh <laughs> so i guess we're we're trying to pick up where we left off from the filming of COVID, and What's really interesting here is we, we finally get to see Mark's behavior on the set. We finally get to see what he's like as a director. And he's all over the place. Like he's, he's we arrive where we're planning on filming in the woods. Uh, he's pointing at all sorts of things in the environment saying, oh yeah, we're gonna have to get somebody to climb a tree and like knock some snow off of there. It's like, what? What? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's like, I know that's like a thing you do in filmmaking, but it's like, look at the resources you have at your, at your command. Think about how much time you have. Work with what you got. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, focus, focus on the, the big picture for, for now. Like, if you, in a, in a different situation, yes, absolutely. Be detailed, focus on the minutia. But with like eight people that you just cobbled together on the fly, with only a few hours in the fucking snow. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe just focus on getting it done. But he's running around, like, doing everything. Like, he's running the camera. He's trying to direct the actors. He has a light meter. He's mumbling to himself about F-stops F and everything. Uh, and there's a couple of shots where he's trying to direct the action while he's, while he's the principal in focus of the shot. <laughs> He's doing the whole fucking thing himself, and you can tell he knows what he's trying to do, but he is such a poor communicator that he just doesn't seem to have a clue how to how to direct the action. And it was really revealing. Um, and I think this also like speaks to his mentality, where he's he he's almost kind of like used to being surrounded by children in some regards. Like in fact the dynamic between him and his actors when he's filming is very similar to him and his kids. Yeah. I didn't notice that. <laughs> Where it's like, he's, he's used to not, not necessarily talking down to people, but talking to people about things, about concepts that they have no understanding of. And it might be like a, everybody needs their win. I use that phrase every once in a while. And I think this might be how he gets his win. It's like in this particular arena of life in, in, in the film world he's used to being the only guy in the room who knows anything and it probably feels pretty good to be like the smartest guy in the room every time one of these subjects comes up <laughs> <laughs> um and i think we are introduced to uh joan uh mark's girlfriend <laughs> 
I didn't even realize she was the girlfriend until well, like much like later into the into the film. Like, oh shit, they're I mean, dating. She looked, yeah, she she looked like his mom or something. But it's like, no, I already met his mom. <laughs> like, um, I mean, for him, yeah, she's not bad looking at all. She looks a little bit older. Uh, she's not, she's not she bad does. looking. She does. She, she does look a little bit older, but she she has that like mom way about her, where it looks like she'd take good care of him, and she does yeah. seem to give a shit about him, which, and she believes in him, which it's it's pretty evident that that's why she's with him is that because he has that silver tongue, because he is a creative guy in an uncreative environment. Yeah, he stands out, and she believes in his ambition. I think she says at some point, like, if he can do 25% of what he says he, he's planning on doing, then he'll have succeeded, in my eyes. Um, and then we meet the kids. And, yeah, like like you said, I kind of I kind of screwed the pooch with this one because this was quite the reveal where it's like, oh, oh, shit, he's got way more to worry about than I thought. <laughs> I, I legit, I'm like, holy shit, he has a kid. Holy shit, he has three kids. You have got to be kidding me. up to this point like you're just watching this and you're like man this guy you know he's just single dude living with mom just scraping it together trying to get this movie together he's got responsibilities and i'm like how i'm like how is he doing this how is he getting anything done uh yeah i'm actually amazed to be honest yeah how is he surviving like how how is how have these kids not starved to death (laughs) Um, but yeah, there are three of them. Was it two, a boy and two girls? Uh, Something like that. And we're introduced to them in like the most '90s way possible. It's depressing as all hell. They're like in the kitchen eating fucking McDonald's off of plates. Those chicken McNuggets like, look good, bro. I, I wanted some chicken nuggets. They did, but it was like, man, this like, if you wanted to give like an honest representation of America at that point in time, it's like, yep, that, that'd be it. Oh, <laughs> aesthetically, like, <laughs> this feels like the 80s. Like, the, the, everything. <laughs> a, little, a little bit, yeah. Everything felt like the 80s in here. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> aesthetically, this movie is kind of a fun time capsule. It is. It does, ca- it does capture an interesting moment in time that both you and I have memories of. And so, like, the more, more time we put between now and then is... It's going to make it more precious. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are now in the summer of 1996. And uh, this is where we get to see Bill in his in his uh, natural environment, in his uh, trailer, which we already talked about a little bit. But it, he lives in squalor. Um, again, though, if you, if you wanted, like, a beautiful photography subject, just him in his native habitat would yeah. be amazing. Um, and this is also where... Uh, Mark expresses that to he imparts to to Uncle Bill that it's like if we can sell X number of VHS tapes, we can make a profit. And Bill is just kind of like whatever. <laughs> so like, Bill doesn't. Bill, Bill agrees with the audience. <laughs> Bill doesn't have the heart to tell him that he's never gonna make it. Is basically what Bill. It's at the tip of his tongue when he's there. He just doesn't have the heart to tell him like, listen, you're spinning your wheels. This is never gonna amount to anything. But he oh, just never man, does. The, he does it in a roundabout fashion, but the very end of this movie, I think, is his way of expressing that. Yeah. Um, it, again, it's in a completely roundabout fashion. It's borderline incoherent, but I think that's what I think that's what he was getting at. But uh, at this point, though, we get to maybe the most enjoyable scene in the film. Head the board. Would be head the board. Head the board. <laughs> 
Hitting the board. Uh, so we are filming Colvin, and uh, we're barbecuing outside while we're filming inside. Um, and we get to see all the actors show up, like the, the thespians. So the thespian oh, yes. shows up. Um, <laughs> the the one gal that I, I'm trying to think of a nickname for her, but she's wearing like she's got the the short like midriff bearing T-shirt. And, oh, uh, she's fine. Like, she's like, she's she is she? fine. And there's a reason there's a reason she's on the flyer. And there's a reason why when we're doing the Photoshop the photo shoot later, Mark's like, "How are you framing her? Are you getting here? <laughs> are you getting here? Are you getting here?" And it's like, ah, ah, I see what you're going for. Yeah. Uh, that'll that'll sell that'll move product um but (laughs) we get this just a couple second clip of ken keen talking with her he's like how you doing yeah you look you look good good. (laughs) (laughs) it's like way to go ken yeah (laughs) um but yeah we're we're filming a scene that uh tom schimmels uh we get to see him outside i guess prior to filming he's sitting out by his car and he's like shot 37 um, so this was a scene that we actually tried to do a while ago, like a year or two ago, and uh, this was like the one scene in the whole fucking movie that really hoped we got in the can. Like, uh, I hoped we got it right the first time, but apparently we need to reshoot it, and uh, that would be the head in the board, <laughs> as you framed it. Um, so we get to see the actors in, I think it's like a kitchen or something. I'm not sure whose house this is, to be honest. Um, but Mark, basically the scene is Mark is seated at a table. Tom is supposed to come up behind him and like put his hands on his shoulders. And then Mark gets into a scuffle with him and it ends with Mark putting Tom on the floor who is, who posts up on all fours. And then Mark pushes his head through a cupboard. Um, (laughs) There are some logistics involved in having a man put his head through a covered door that uh, apparently we failed to take into consideration. <laughs> yeah, they use a real board. He's like, yeah, kind of just uh, put some, put some. Well, I forgot what word he uses. He basically makes it so that it breaks easier. Uh, yeah, it's scores. N- he puts scores in it. They are not very good. Uh, no, just just at a cursory glance, it's like, no, no, that that's not going to do nothing. <laughs> So this is a solidly constructed covered door, as we'll see, because... uh, It's basically like just throwing somebody's head through a normal covered door. Yes! (laughs) Yes! So we get to see multiple takes of Mr. Tom Schimmel's slamming the top of... The weakest part of your skull. (laughs) (laughs) The top of his head into this covered door, and you just hear these sickening, like, and it's not going like it is not going and they do multiple hits per take i don't know how many times his head impacted this cupboard but um yeah he he probably has some cte at this point um (laughs) (laughs) so the solution to this problem though is uh mark actually sits down and tries to punch the cupboard door and uh he like I think he cuts his knuckles on it. Yeah, he does. He's like, oh, man, I'm sorry you tried to put your head through that. That's pretty fucking solid, man. <laughs> so they rescore it, and finally they get it to work. Uh, we get some some pretty fun blood effects here where uh, Tom's, like, crumpled on the floor, and he's got blood pouring out of his head. And <laughs> we get to hear Mark deliver some 
direction here. He's like, fingers twitching, please. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That <laughs> nerves, was funny. Nerves twitching, please. <laughs> um, that was pretty cute. Because you can tell that like that's the shit he likes. In fact, I forget. It may be a little later in the documentary, but basically he's asked what films inspired you. Yeah, it's, and again, without skipping a beat, it's like Dawn of, Dawn the, of the Dead, Dead Night of the Living Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He picks three, well, two... Um, two independent horror films. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The original is awesome. I love that. It, it's really great. I haven't. I've seen Night of the Living Dead. Not crazy about it, but I get why he'd really like it. And I still have not seen the original Dawn of the Dead because I have to buy it on Blu-ray for fifty dollars in order to watch it. Yeah, yeah. We've we've gone over that Ugh. before. That apparently the the distribution rights to that film are in limbo or something. I, there's a lot of there's a lot of printings of that movie that are suddenly very rare. Yeah, I'm I I'm once I have the money to just pull the trigger and buy it on Blu-ray, I'll get it, but I'm just not there. I'm not in that part of my life where I can blindly spend the money on uh Dawn of the Dead Blu-ray. I bet you the the supplements for that would be really great because as far as I know Romero was a very open guy when it came to talking about the making of his films and there are some stories about the making of that one in particular that are really fun was it Screaming Mad George or was it um, um, who did the makeup effects for that Tom Savini. Savini that's what I was thinking I'm like it's one of the big ones it's one of the big names I knew I just wasn't sure which one it was yeah uh, I think did Screaming Mad George work on that at all uh, as an assistant of some kind mm. I, I feel like he did but I don't think be... he was I don't think he worked on that one uh, he I don't know which set he worked on but uh, I know Greg Nicotero joined up with Savini at some point but that may have been later like in the like firmly into the 80s Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I could, we, we, we could talk about that shit all day. Did you catch um, uh, the little kid when he's uh, talking to his kids? The one kid says, uh, uh, "It's like apocalypse now." I'm like, "Whoa, what?" This. Oh yeah, the the documentary crew asks asks the kids, um, asks Mark's kids, um, like what like what movies has your dad had you watch? And they're like, "Apocalypse now." I'm like, <laughs> "Dude, you can't have your kids watch Apocalypse Now." Yeah, the horror. Yeah, horror. The horror. <laughs> yeah, no, he's seen the fucking movie probably many times. That's bad <laughs> if you remember. If that's what that's uh, parenting. Because <laughs> you know what scene leads up to the horror is the slaughter, slaughter. of an actual animal. Yeah. <laughs> um, at this point, we finally, and this was very important, I'm sure, to anybody seeing this movie for the first time, we finally address the pronunciation of Coven. Um. So there's just this random scene of Mark and the thespian whose name I was right. It is Robert Richard Jorge. Uh, man, this guy is true acting professional. <laughs> he says later in the film, I'll take off the scarf. That should let you know what we're, who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he, is, he cannot be anything but an actor. He's done a Shakespeare camp before. A few. Um but they're sitting together in, in like a it looks like a recording booth of some sort there's like a piano in the room and the documentary crew ask from behind the camera like they're asking about the name Coven and uh Robert very plainly says it's 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 Coven <laughs> and Mark's like no way man Co- Coven would be like like oven that's that's just wrong man <laughs> a coven. it's totally Coven it's totally Coven <laughs> like <laughs> that's kind of perfect i think it's his accent i don't think so i think it's just his 
misunderstanding of the English language. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. But yeah, so he insists that his film is called Coven, um, and I to this day will, you know, forever call it that. Uh, it's not Coven; it is Coven. Um, and then we get to see Mark at the cemetery, and this is like his one of his jobs. He's like a caretaker at a cemetery, and he delivers a lot of speeches here about, like, here everyone is equal, and and he feels like a, a sense of like profound comfort from this environment, like, and I think it's just like he feels ostracized from his own like his own dwellings, like he doesn't feel like he belongs here, so like being a, a, among the dead, it's like more comforting than trying to blend in and and like get along with like his dad and other like-minded individuals but this is not the only time he delivers a speech like this um and this is also where he makes mention of of like the frontier and how drinking and being rebellious and stuff like that that's like kind of his ideal like be i think he phrases it as being like a teenager with a camera and a beer like one in each hand that that's like the happiest times of his life i guess and he was well aware of the fact that everyone around him was disapproving of that, but that's that's his happy place, apparently. Um, <laughs> by the way, we also get a clip of The More the Scarier 4, and what's really cute is uh, in parentheses at the bottom of the screen it says unfinished. <laughs> so yeah, we know. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, Mark, we know that. We know. Um, he also made a film called I Blow Up from 1982 that's basically him just dumping kool-aid over his head and and uh like i don't know having a seizure (laughs) i made shit like that um and this is also where we learn a bit more about mom and dad um and i think we got this from uh interviews with his brothers where like mom is a swedish gal complete with accent um mom and dad are divorced and the few interviews we have with dad he is uptight and guarded as all hell. Mm-hmm. Like he's very political with all of his answers in front of the camera. To the to the extent that we only get a couple of clips of him because any any sort of at all personal questions, he seems like he just says, "Nah, we're not doing that." Um, but it's pretty clear that uh, the living situation at home when Mark was young was not great. Uh, all the brothers uh, confirm this. Uh, they all say that like it's pretty awful living situation. A lot of shouting. It was a pretty violent environment, and mom and dad clearly didn't belong together. Um, and the one brother does make mention of the fact that he thinks that the filming and like the imagination stuff were kind of how Mark got away from all that. Like with he withdrew from the family basically. Um, <laughs> then we get to see Mike Shank do some scratch tickets. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's been, he says I spent ten dollars a day for the past week on scratch off tickets. So, oh man, you gotta work on your Mike Shank. Hey man, I only had, <laughs> I had very little time to prepare. What? I had ten dollars a day on scratch tickets, <laughs> Mark. I I won some money at the at the convenience store. Well, he's like he comes in at one point. He comes in happy because he won like fifty bucks. He's like, I don't want to tell him because they're gonna try to yeah. get me to give him the money. Um, yeah, that was that was depressing. It's like. He's not wrong either. (laughs) No. Uh, We get to find out, like, how much uh, Mark goes through his bills, like, exactly what he's looking at. Uh, He owes Mm -hmm. $10,000 to his dad, 
3600 in child support. I'm assuming 3600 is just for that month because he's got three fucking kids. Um, mm. 1500 the IRS, another 500, another 300, another 50. There's I I for, there was one in there I didn't even hit. There was like another 200. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous how much he, how far in debt he is. Yeah, I I don't know how he keeps his head above water. Um, that's a big mystery, but um, at some point, Mike tells us the tale of how he became friends with Mark. The vodka story it, is so sad. Yeah, he's like, I, I used to party a lot, and I, I, I like to drink a lot of vodka. And, uh, yeah, Mark came over, and he, he had a big bottle of vodka, and uh, we drank it together. And then uh, we used to get together a lot and, and drink vodka together. <laughs> and that's the <laughs> whole... Like, so that's the entire foundation of your relationship to Mark, is you guys drank a lot midwest high midwest high school man that's what a lot of us had in common with each other i guess but it it is i'm sure there's more details to it but like the way he tells the story it's like is there gonna be anything to this or is it just you guys drank vodka vodka together and then decided you were friends (laughs) that's pretty much how those bonded those bonds those those bonds are created yeah um, well, there's we a, get to see. I had those same oh. bonds, but I'm not really friends with those people anymore. So they just, yeah. un- unfortunately, they have those. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't have any of those bonds, but I've witnessed those bonds being formed, and there's a reason why I stayed away. Yeah, <laughs> smart, um, smart, wicked smart. Um, so we get to see Mark uh, have him help. Has he has like his son help him do a little bit of filming? And it's kind of a cute moment where it's like oh you know he's trying to get some work done but he's also trying to you know not neglect his parenting duties at the same time yeah so like he's he's like in a cramped office trying to do some shit but he he has all of his kids around him yeah like he, he's with them and you can tell that he he does care about them um and the way he talks to his son in particular i like that he like shook his hand and he was like you did good son and i was like wow <laughs> like, yeah. i'm sure his son felt pretty good in that moment um but we also get to see Mark um, kind of depressed where he's talking about this this gal, Alyssa, who we only see from the back in, like, one shot in this entire documentary. Apparently she didn't sign the release or whatever to be on camera. Um, but he has these three kids by this woman, Alyssa, and apparently she, like, wanted him to marry her or something, and they've been on a break for, like, three years or something while she's with some other guy. Uh, it's very strange situation but at this point she's also talking about taking the kids away so mark's a little freaked out yeah uh he's a little they have an argument outside the house is this before or after thanksgiving is this before thanksgiving uh, that would be after that would be after oh uh, I, I, at, th- at this point in the documentary we are pre-thanksgiving but that that conversation happens post thanksgiving forgot to mention that we're splicing in um retro shots of the packers leading up to their super bowl uh this year which i i thought about for a little bit i'm like they're kind of throwing i'm like it, it kind of matters at one point but like this is also a distraction keeping him from like getting shit done because that's also a reason like Packer your home team are doing good I know from experience that football and beer go together like peanut butter and chocolate like that's just there's that's what he's also doing in his spare time is he's seen watching football several times throughout the film he's seen watching football but his uh attitude towards it is very revealing in regards to his character and we'll we'll get to that for sure um 
but it needs to be said when he's talking about his kids being taken away he does throw the he does throw the phrase out there i don't want to end up being a nothing mm-hmm. so you can tell it does he does have a little bit of a realistic viewpoint buried deep down like he does understand that holy shit my situation kind of sucks <laughs> um but yeah now we're at thanksgiving and before the festivities uh mark invites uncle bill over and bill sings us a song and a poem and uh i it's kind of incoherent it's difficult to figure out but it's really depressing stuff about his his wife having died and someone from behind the camera one of the documentary folks actually asks like what are these because he has like notebooks strewn about in his in his trailer and stuff and uncle bill like pauses for a second he says well this is what happened to me and it it didn't hit until this time I watched it, but I was like, oh, he's just telling he's just telling it like it is. In fact, like at some point he's like mourning the loss of his his wife and like saying like you you chose to leave, as in I'm guessing she wanted to die or something. Mm-hmm. It's pretty sad, fucking shit. It's but, really sad. Yeah, Bill wants a peppermint schnapps with Sprite. He, is that a good drink? Kyle? He doesn't want a peppermint schnapps and Sprite. He's offered schnapps from Mark, who later says, no, he wanted it himself. Uh, he waits for his mom to leave, and as soon as mom shuts that door, he's like, well, you, uh, you want some schnapps? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think Bill might, might have a – he's probably not allowed to drink. Uh, he doesn't seem to be – he doesn't seem to drive. I don't think anybody brings him uh, – they might bring him food and stuff. He might have – I think Mark probably goes to the grocery store for him, but he doesn't buy him booze. So he lights up when he's like, yeah. I like some schnapps. He gets schnapps and Sprite with, he's like, I want a couple glugs and uh, some ice in there. I'm like, that sounds fucking disgusting. Uh, I don't drink at all. I have no concept in my mind of what peppermint or schnapps taste like. But Peppermint but, schnapps, take, let me put it to you this way. Take the, um, take a peppermint patty without the chocolate. Mm-hmm. Think, think that intense peppermint flavor even like just an altoid that intense okay. peppermint flavor that's what peppermint schnapps okay. is and it'll fuck you up because uh, it's 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 <laughs> it's uh it's uh 50 like it it's stronger than most normal Ooh. liquors it's strong Ooh. and he's mixing it with sprite which is gotta be disgusting i don't know why w- why would you pick sprite some people just answer me that some people have their co- their combinations that they like and uh he might not like caffeine like people are like oh let me get a rum and coke well you don't really want the caffeine sprite doesn't have any caffeine maybe that's what it mm-hmm. is he just stays away from caffeine that's the only thing i can think of why not root beer peppermint peppermint schnapps and root beer i'd get that i'd understand that hell i'd, well, I'd order I mean, that just to try it without having a clue what it would taste like just writing that phrase out on paper peppermint schnapps with sprite just disgust me well <laughs> I, we we found out there's a liquor called southern comfort which is uh i think it's a technically a peach brandy it's a distilled peach wine uh and we mix it with mountain dew and it makes bubble gum it makes a bubble gum flavor it's really i haven't had it since i was probably 18 uh mm-hmm. but maybe peppermint schnapps and sprite makes some weird drink i don't know it might have a weird interesting flavor well, whenever you graduate from whatever you graduate from, maybe you have that as like a celebration. <laughs> Do it for me. I want. I want to know. I'll try that once I get accepted to the place I want to be, be accepted to. There you go. Um, so Mark actually does a sweet thing, and he uh, he bathes uh, Uncle Bill. Yeah, like he he 
gives him like a sponge bath or something. <laughs> I am, I am. I'm trying, I'm trying. I don't think Uncle Bill bathes himself very often, and yeah, I, think I don't think was, so. That was but really, it was really sweet. It was sweet. It was sweet watching the two of them, and like <laughs> Mark is having a laugh at like a Bill's toenail. He's like, "Oh man, that's a science photo." Yeah, <laughs> science photo. <laughs> Um, and then he does his laundry, and he he does grumble a bit about having to do the laundry, so maybe he isn't as sweet as he lets on, but what we got on film was very sweet. Yeah. Um, so at this point, uh, Joan shows up at the house, and uh, Mike and uh, Ken Keen also come by, and we're cooking a turkey and everything. It's Thanksgiving, obviously. It's a nice Friendsgiving. Um, it is. It's a good Friendsgiving. Uh and Mark is clearly a bit drunk already, but yeah. um, I think you mentioned off air. Uh, I think he drinks more than we actually see. I th- I think that yes, uh, he's visibly. You can definitely tell in this scene that he's way more drunk, and I think that I think he drinks beer often. I think he and there's a big difference between drinking beer and drinking liquor and i think he might have gotten into the schnapps for this particular scene and he didn't tell his family and i think that's why he's acting out a bit more i think he probably just coasts on beer i think that's just i think you're right he's just perpetually at like a he's just a little foggy yeah. all day long he, basically. he's yeah, yeah he's not he's not getting good sleep most of the time i wanted to mention uh I, we talked about it before we started recording there was a moment in here when i'm when it kind of just I'm like, yeah, I think he's a kind of a functioning alcoholic. He he's down in the basement, and there's there's like some kind of the darker like there's some like intense moments in the basement. The when like there are there are several, um, and this was one of them. He goes down to the basement, and I don't know why they picked the basement to do this, but it, it, it's interesting that they chose the basement to do this. Uh, he goes downstairs, and he's like talking to the camera, and then a beer comes into frame, and he takes a good guzzle, and he's like, yeah, I'm getting you like a really good costume down here. And I think he's sneaking it, um, which is definitely alcoholic behavior. I don't think he's really supposed to be drinking that much. And he might have, and I know from experience that generally if somebody's not doing so well financially and they have a drinking problem, mom taking them in, they're like, you can't be drinking. Like, you can't, you just can't be doing it. And I think he might have, for the Super Bowl, had a, like, oh, come on, it's the Super Bowl. Let me, or it was Thanksgiving. Let me, let me have a few. No, it was the Super Bowls when he was tying one off. That's, I'm sorry, getting the two days mixed up. I apologize. Yeah. Um, actually, there's, there's three days here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, forgot to mention it. When we were filming the, uh, the head in the board, um, Tom Schimmel's smashing his head through the cupboard door. Um, that's when we got to see him have his like heart to heart with the camera in the basement. So basically, he's whispering directly to the camera to the documentary crew about how he's he got like conf- fifty. Sh- he's got like six hours and fifty shots to do, so he's under a lot of stress. And he's supposed to be looking for blankets. That's why he's in the basement. He's supposed to be looking for blankets to uh, to cover up the camera noise because it's an old camera and it makes whirring noises. <laughs> um, but while he's doing that, like you said, a beer just like floats up into the frame and he takes a big swig and then he yells up up the stairs to like say, yeah, I found some good blankets down here. It's like, ah, so I don't think the documentary crew took him down there Interesting. in any of but there's these instances. A couple- I, I think you're right. I think he did go down to the basement because he needed a moment because he was under a lot of pressure and he was freaking out. And, you know, there's a camera there. I may as well talk to it to get this shit off off my mind 
we don't really get anything about like the clash between um, I feel like the clash between somebody who sees himself as a director and then somebody who's actually shooting a documentary and he I don't know we don't get any like tension between the two of them if there was there might have been they might have just decided to leave that out he's like like we're going to get you get a shot of you doing this and you don't see Mark like Oh, why don't I come this way? Like trying to give him notes or something like that. And that would have been really, really interesting because yeah. that's actually one of the things that makes this film interesting is that it's a documentary made by a professional film crew filming a slightly inept filmmaker. Yeah. And, and it does beg the question, like you have competent people surrounding you at the moment. They're probably not supposed to be helping you, but they probably can. Yeah. And I wonder if he but, picked their brains at all, or like or at least he probably didn't think about it. I don't know, but at the same time, it's like what what I what we know about this guy through watching this documentary. It makes me think he probably wouldn't. Like he'd be too prideful. He's yeah. Like oh no, man, I'm not gonna do what you know those college kids would do. You know. Yeah. Like I'm gonna do it my own way, like the way the cowboys would do. It. <laughs> like. And also, I, the, it's, the, it's that it's that I don't want to be one of them mentality. Or I've, even I've seen it. Far too many times. The style of documentary is completely different than shooting a it film. Is. It, it is, but at the same time, like from a technical standpoint, they know how to make a film. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. right there. Um, but yeah, we we're getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner. We're eating it. It's pretty fucking awful watching them eat in this tiny kitchen. Yeah, and everything. It's the '90s, so all the food looks disgusting. <laughs> I don't know what it is about like that that grain of film. But it just makes everything look not nasty. Good. Yeah, yeah, it looks unappetizing. But uh, this is where Mike Shank mentions the I won fifty dollars off a of, off a of scratch tickets today, but I don't want to tell anybody because you know Mark will probably want to borrow it. And and that was very sad. But he does mention it, and Mike. he doesn't ask him on camera to borrow it. But he does he does mm-hmm. mention it eventually. This is also where we get another one of those scenes in the basement where. Uh, Mark is talking direct camera and uh he's <laughs> the it ends like really dark. Yeah. Like he's he's having a heart to heart with the camera and it he doesn't end with any words. As far as I remember, he just like pulls up a piece of turkey and just eats, eats it the in front of the camera. Well, yeah, and it's like whoa. He almost like, he like went to a place. He, he was getting defensive. Like he asked him, like, what do you think about the like what would like kind of mm-hmm. like what do you think about it? What, what like you're so almost like oh you're so great you're you're a documentary filmmaker what do you think about my film yeah there i wouldn't be surprised if more was said after they yeah. cut from that because they it, he he did have a confrontational look about him in that moment yeah um so we got to the next day and uh, <laughs> mark is ragging on mike for ripping off black sabbath yeah <laughs> and they go back and forth he's like you know, like <laughs> mike you totally ripped off black sabbath you changed one note you changed one word and like i don't know if anyone if either one of them is in the right with their particular arguments but it's cute and mark confesses on camera with with his i think it's his son like asleep on the couch with him um that he was like really depressed for the past week and he he does mention though that like having mike here with him in this moment like really helps really helps him a lot like it it helps his mental health it makes him happy and they they go back and forth him and mike just talking about what they're thankful for and mike is thankful for money and food and mike is mark is mostly thankful for mike and i was like that's they have a good friendship 
Mike Mike has a good energy. He he is, he seems like a sweet guy. He seems genuine. He he does seem like a very sweet guy. Um and clearly he's a good friend to Mark. I don't know if it, if any of that rubs off on Mark, but clearly they they do something for each other. Yeah. And now we're in winter of 1996 and Mark is like huddled up in front of the TV watching footage of Northwestern, which again is not completed. And he's asked, "Why didn't you finish it?" And he i can't remember the exact quote but what i wrote down was like like if you actually go ahead and do it and complete it then there's actual consequences to it yeah and uh yeah that is that's like story of his life i think that should <laughs> like, be that, like, that should be like the film like the the tag like the, the one of the quotes from the film is like yeah he's a yeah he's afraid he's afraid to finish it he's afraid to have he, it i think yeah he doesn't want it to be He's insecure about it, and he doesn't. He's afraid once it's finished, like all of his insecurities are just gonna be poked and like pointed out throughout the film. I would say it well, makes yeah, sense. It's it's like a and then what type situation? Yeah, where it's like then I gotta go back to normal life. That's just that's just crazy, man. Like so much so much of his decision making seems to be surrounded by that idea of just not wanting to end up in a factory yeah just not wanting to be like everyone else i can't blame um, him i worked in two of them when i was 18 and i completely get what he's doing i never did factory work but i did work in a warehouse and a thrift store and uh, it taught me quite a bit about life <laughs> yes yes <laughs> um so now we finally get to mom uh we're filming pickups oh, with mom uh so these are like additional shots that needed to be done for a the head in the board scene yeah uh, this was so frustrating to watch it was I it was, was making me uncomfortable man <laughs> i felt so bad for him i'm like he really is trying like he's really trying to get this done and his poor mom there's a there's mm. miscommunication there's a little bit of a language barrier and he's just trying so hard to get this shot done and it's it's frustrating and you could just see he's just like Oh yeah, the way the way this scene is edited is beautiful. Yeah, because what what we get is she's running the camera, um, again sixteen millimeter camera covered in blankets uh, to cover the noise, and she's just trying to get a simple shot of Mark um, hunched over, panting, and then ducking out of frame, and the again like you said the communication difficulties are just uh, profoundly frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way the scene is edited, uh, we get to see shots from the documentary crew from their perspective, but then we actually splice in footage directly from the camera that she's handling. So mm-hmm. like Mark's 16 millimeter footage and to see him in the center of the frame, like closing his eyes and just like biting his lip and trying not to explode on his mom. Like it's, it's, it's good. It's good drama, good juicy drama, but holy shit, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so immediately after this, I, and I don't know if this actually happened the same day, for the love of God, I hope not, but um, Alyssa shows up, and they have a shouting match at the car yeah. like, out in the front lawn with the kids present. And there are a lot of F-bombs being tossed around, and apparently what happened was, like, Joan, uh, Mark's girlfriend, came to the house. Uh, Alyssa was there. Um, they got into it. Joan left, apparently in a huff, and Alyssa and Mark got into a shouting match in front of their kids, and holy shit, <laughs> it's just a fuck. It fuck, man. Um, 
so Mark is now in a car by himself, and he's doing the last shoot, the last shot of Coven, uh, and it's this really profound moment where he's like alone in a car, winding a Bolex, a camera, and he's like, just. I think he's broken down to the point that he just doesn't care anymore. <laughs> like he's very apathetic in this moment. He's just like getting it done. And it's really fitting that like the, the end of this, this filming journey is, is him alone in a car. <laughs> yeah. And it's really sad, but um, I guess at this point he believes that Joan left him. She comes back later, but <laughs> in this moment he believes that like he's, he has nothing. And he says, as Joni put it, now you've got nothing. Um, and mom comes out to like take a, a still shot of him in the car, like a production photo or something. And he's just like slouched in the back seat. And it's, oh man, it's rough. Um, and then we get an interview with mom that's like really heavy stuff. Like, again, I guess this is like the dark part of the film. <laughs> um, she says, like, he lives for movies, always movies. And then they ask her, like, is he ever going to like succeed in making that big movie that he that he dreams about and she pauses and she takes a a good long moment she says i i don't think so no and you can tell that she really had to like fight that like she did not want to say that on camera but she had to yeah like yeah honestly i don't i I don't think so um then we get to do some adr and uh it's robert the thespian Uh, he's like in the living room just like speaking his dialogue in his very uh stagey way and we get this really cute shot of like mark and his family sitting in the kitchen and like you can hear all the actors in the living room like just through the door <laughs> like yeah. like screaming these insane ramblings and stuff and all the kids are around it's like again parenting <laughs> um and now we get to the editing stage of the film because because uh mark you know he, he finished the filming of coven in the in the backseat of his car. Uh, now he's using the facilities at the University of Milwaukee uh, to do editing on his 16 millimeter film. And holy shit, this is a process. Um, he's taken his kids into the editing bay and they're sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags. Um, I mean, good job being a dad taking your kids to work, but like, damn, that's putting in hours and that's. Yeah. <laughs> We get to see Mark at the cemetery again. We get to see the funny image of him uh, with a ponytail and a dress shirt vacuuming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh, but just the sight of him like that made me laugh. Well, he's uh, vacuuming, and it's it's clear that he's just not very bright because he's vacuuming, and he's just... I've had to do a lot of vacuuming before, and he's just running right into the cord, and then he turns around, and he's running right back into the cord again. I'm like, dude, <laughs> this isn't rocket science. Like... Yeah, it's it's the shot is it's kind of sad when you see it because it's like they're putting in him like doing work, which you do. But just those little details, you're like, man, he's just not he's just not with it. Well, and also he gets like the cord caught on some flowers yeah. that are <laughs> that are belong to a, a dead person. Yeah. <laughs> and he just like yanks the cord off of it. And then uh, he goes he goes home and he pays Joan a visit who got a haircut. Uh, her hair became even more 90s. Um, she looks like a lot of grade school teachers I had. Um, and he gives her a, like a garbage bag full of flowers. 
that he stole from the cemetery. <laughs> yeah, he stole flowers from the cemetery. <laughs> yeah, and thankfully she seems to be in on the joke. Like she knows where they came from, and they have a laugh over it. But uh, they go. Mark seems like he's just like living in the editing suite at this point, and uh, we get a cute moment with his kid where. He, they're laying down in their sleeping bags and he's like D- did you just swear man <laughs> because like he thinks his daughter said shit for the first time but he's not and sure he like, he's like i don't he's care. not sure yeah it's it's a funny parenting moment where he's like i, I don't care man i just i just want to make sure i'm not getting senile or something i'm not hearing <laughs> things you know yeah uh so yeah then we have to go get some adr for uh uncle bill uh but before that we get uh Mark picking up Mike, because Mike is going to help him, and Mike says to him, my mom packed us a lunch, and this mom goes into the mom hall of fame, she, he's like, what did she pack us? He's like, Polish sausage, cheese and crackers, and then we find out what else she packed in there. Trevor, did you see what soda Mike hands Uncle Bill in the trailer? How could I forget? Oh it's, my God. It's, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, Bill... Bill demands nourishment. Yes. He needs sustenance before he can deliver his, his lines on the microphone. So uh, Mike Shank is kind enough to share some some cheese and crackers with him. And then he pulls out a bright green can of Surge. Motherfucking Surge. The best yeah. soft drink ever. Yeah. And it's amazing, too, because I, 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 I remember the first time I had Surge. I some fella from Montana brought it, and I was like, "Oh, this is amazing!" <laughs> I think that's why I'm short now, was because of Surge. Uh, but <laughs> I saw the can, and I legit had a physiological reaction. I saw it, and I got excited. I'm like, "Oh man!" <laughs> I remember seeing that can. It was brilliant marketing. It was the greatest. It was a good soda. Shout out to Surge. Uh, I'm just once it hits your lips. I once saw, it hits your lips. I saw it. I, I guess they still sell it, but uh, they brought it back. But I was at um, my family's house in uh, in Indiana, and we went to the store to go grab something. And we were in like where my, my, my great-grandparents live. And this was like a really small like grocery store, convenience store. And they had Surge in there. And I'm like, oh, I want to get it. I want to get a six-pack of Surge. But I'm like, wait. Is this new Surge or is this Surge from the 90s? <laughs> Has that Surge been there since 1996? <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm only going to drink half of it. I don't drink soda anymore. So I'm like, I'm going to drink half of it and just have a six pack. I'm like, no, don't waste your money. I'll do it again one day. I'll, I'll, I'll. Oh, you should have bought it and just like stretched it out. Uh, but I can only drink, I, yeah, I can't drink a whole soda. No, that's what I mean. You just like, you, you share it with somebody. You yeah. stretch it. I'll do and the next you time. Can I... have, you can have Surge in your house it's, for a long time. It's probably so sugary that I couldn't even, I can't even drink it now, I would assume. Just your teeth would just melt uh, instantly. Just, ow! Just, <laughs> no, it's hurting my <laughs> teeth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, this scene uh, is one of the more memorable ones in the entire documentary. This is the, it's alright, it's okay. Yeah. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so. Poor Bill. Scene. He wants, yeah. This scene, man. So, yeah. we do 30 takes. 30, Uncle 31 Bill. takes. 31 takes. 31 takes of uh, Uncle Bill sitting in a car 
Uh, and did you know? Did you note the uh, blue tarp? Yes, I did. On, I on definitely noted that. Yes. Have you ever seen that before? No, I think it, the reason why they I, I thought about it too. I'm like, it's probably just a shitty car. Also, he's trying to get the he's trying to get the elements. It's I think it's kind of raining out, and I think he probably was like, we don't we're gonna have the window down. We don't want to ruin the seat, so let's put a tarp down. I'm hoping oh, that's why it's there. I hope so. I, I feel like that was just a fixture in his car, though. That he sits with a tarp at his back for some reason. My downstairs neighbor. Maybe he gets. My downstairs neighbor has kind of a, a weird car situation going on. It. I, I wouldn't be surprised if yeah, if the tarp is just there. It's just kind of part of the car now. Maybe he gets like savage back sweats or something. I mean, <laughs> I'm feeling that right now, man. Ugh. Yeah, I believe it. Um, but yeah, we do 31 takes with Uncle Bill, and he's supposed to say this line. Um, it's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so. Um, there are layers to this scene. Yeah. Um, so Uncle Bill is not an actor. No. Uh, he can barely speak. Like his, his speech is stilted, and and he has mutton mouth for sure. But the reason I say there are layers to the scene is because you are asking a man who is at the end of his rope, who does not care about living any longer, to say this line. Uh, again, he's not an actor, so you're asking him to speak an untruth. <laughs> like, you're, you're asking him to express himself and lie, basically. Because he doesn't believe that. Clearly, he doesn't believe that. And, uh, yeah, his delivery is awful. And eventually, Uncle Bill just says, I'm not doing this anymore. We're done. 31 takes. I don't blame him. And, yeah, no, that's a lot to ask from a very old man. Who uh, does not, who clearly does not want to do this. And he's bundled up. You can tell it's cold out too. Yeah. Um, Got old bones. But you can tell at the same time though. It's like Mark could have asked anyone else to do this. Yeah. So I think it meant some. I think it meant something to him to have Uncle Bill do this. Um, So you can tell Mark is unhappy with what he got. Um, We do see that clip in the in the finished film, and it's it's very badly edited i mean i it's not as bad as weekend at bernie's man that i've seen <laughs> bad adr weekend at bernie's is 90 percent adr fair point bad adr <laughs> i need to see that again really that. really bad adr <laughs> it's they it, should put that on the cover of the dvd it's hard to watch like go back and watch weekend at bernie's and you I tell need me to see it just just for that because you've told me that before Oh man, yeah, um, but. but yeah, uh, we walk away with absolute garbage in the can as far as uh, that particular chunk of ADR is concerned, and then we get the acid oh, story. Yeah. Poor Mike, he he's just rattling the off. the acid story. I mean, <laughs> we watch Salt Lake City Punk, so we know this can happen. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's what's funny is uh, this movie. Like when I was watching it this time, I was like, huh. Kyle had me watch SLC Punk a while back, and it's making me think of that. Yeah, um, like, this is a similar kind of story with a, a guy with a similar kind of mentality. I uh, I was watching I was watching this. I he was talking. I'm like, is he talking about a dream? Because it sounded like he was talking about a dream um, at first. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, oh no, this is real life. So apparently, Mike has been he's been on the wagon for about a year and a half. He doesn't touch drugs or alcohol. He just has soda. He smokes cigarettes. He plays guitar. He's got some kind of job, I'm assuming. Um, maybe I don't know. But if you haven't seen if you haven't seen this yet, Mike is just not like he's. You can tell something's not firing. He's just not all the way there anymore. Yeah. And um, yeah. 
he, this would be why. Yeah, he tells this story about how he has um, he has to go to the hospital and he's just completely out of it, and he's reaching in his pocket. I guess he has acid in his pocket, and he's like, in he's he's so into drugs that he is trying to find the acid in his pocket so he can take it in the hospital again. But they they kept him there, and they said that he had taken PCP. There may have been acid, but uh, there was PCP in his system with some kind of downer, and he said that they kept me in the hospital for a month yeah that is that is bad that is really that's really bad um and that and seeing that you're just like thinking back to the documentary like oh my god he's just fried it's yeah he's honestly it's like seeing ozzy osbourne like i think ozzy osbourne has more more to his to him now like yeah yeah and that's i think you're right that's how bad it is like he definitely had a he took way too much of the wrong drug, and I think it pretty much just fried him. And Yeah, I mean, this impression that I've been doing of Mike, I think, is fairly accurate. Um, that's He's mostly monotone for the most part, and he's just kind of comes across as very dopey. But um, I forgot when this happened in the documentary, but he has a pretty great quote here where... Um, he's like, here's what I think of lottery. It's, it's like when you play the lottery, sometimes you win... And sometimes you'll lose, but it's better than using drugs or alcohol because when you use drugs and alcohol, especially drugs, you always lose. Yeah. <laughs> that's, like, that's like his PSA for the whole movie. Um, he he might by be the dependent way, on mom. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Well, what's, what's funny is we, we didn't mention it, but um, he actually goes to group sessions for scratch tickets because he traded one or two addictions for that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this is being mean or not, but um, after he finishes his, his story about his intense drug problem, uh, we immediately cut to him smoking outside. <laughs> well, it's like, oh, he's, he's not entirely he's not entirely in the clear. You got to have a vice and that's the best. I, I've noticed a lot of people work in the steps. Cigarettes are good. You got to you got to switch it out. You got to have something. You have to have something. Yeah. Well, he has scratch tickets and cigarettes. Yeah. Apparently, I remember um, somebody in my family. They were on the wagon. They had they had to be on the wagon for uh, probation, going through pots of coffee. I'm talking oh, pots of coffee. Wow. And cigarettes. Like that's you gotta have something. Yeah, I believe it. But that's wow. tough. That's 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 gotta that's gotta fuck you up. <laughs> like. Like I said, you gotta, How many times do you pee a day? It, it doesn't <laughs> matter God. at that point. It, like it doesn't matter. Like I, I have to have something. Yeah, it's it's sad, and it's. I think I think Mike probably uh, was gonna he was gonna go down a dark road either way. Like it was just mm-hmm. it was bound to happen, and it just happened way sooner for him than it than yeah. it would have. Unfortunately, but yeah. So Super Bowl Sunday, Packers ninety-seven. Packers versus the uh, versus the Packs. This is a uh, Brett Favre. Oh uh. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, th- was was would you call that a dynasty or is that inaccurate? Uh, Brett Favre is a very very well known quarterback. He definitely had his flaws. Um, it nowhere near. I I don't even think they've won that many Super Bowls with Favre. Like he was he was a big deal, but they're nowhere near the Brady Belichick. Okay. You can't touch it right now. Okay. They have, I think, the Brady Belichick duo have the most Super Bowl wins as a quarterback and head coach together. Okay, I'm pretty. Who sure. Who's the coach of the Packers in in the late nineties? Oh God, damn it! I have n- uh, God, uh, Bill. I I had it. 
Bellum? I can't. I lost it. I had it. I'm not going to get it. I'm going to have to look that's, it up. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. We're not, not going to get hung up on it, but if you want to throw it in there at the end. No. Um, so we're watching the Super Bowl. And, uh, Mom and Mark are watching it in the kitchen, and uh, Mark's brother and his daughter and his dad are all watching it in the living room. And I, I told you off the air that kind of like spells it out to you on a visual level, like the dynamics of this family, where it's like Mark is on mom's side and then the brothers are more than likely with dad yeah um and then uh mike shows up and he he wants the money uh likely off of scratch tickets and uh mark immediately like hops out of his chair and he's like yeah we can go to the we can go to the tavern and get some beers yeah and uh so he's just like counting the moments like counting the minutes until this fucking super bowl ends just so he can go get beers that it hasn't even been confirmed that he can get. <laughs> it's like, like Mike never said yes, and apparently Mom is the person doing the driving, and she said no pretty much right away. But he's like dead set on this idea. Like he wants, he needs this to happen. Um, and then he starts to get uppity uh, because it becomes clear that he's not going to get what he wants. No, and he's very clearly he's already drunk. Like big time. Yeah, he's he's had a few. He's keeping his beers in the is, freezer, by the way. I don't know what that's all yeah, about. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess if he knew he was going to drink them right away. I mean, if he's keeping them in the freezer, he must be crushing them. I mean, this is a three. I mean, the Super Bowl, the halftime isn't that big a deal back then. So, like, what, three, three and a half hours? He's probably gone through a case of beer. A couple. Yeah. He's probably about four hours he's gone through a case of beer, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if... if his dad and his brother were drinking some, but Mike's not. Mom's not. So no, that's I mean, his if case. You're of in, if, if you're putting it in the freezer, uh, you can't keep it in there that long. So yeah, he no. must have gone through it in one day. Um, and then mom is like mutters to herself, uh, "He can never quit. Uh, when he starts drinking, he can never quit." And she says it at, at a volume where he can hear that. Um, but this is more than likely the dynamic they have where it's like she's the enabler where she's clearly disapproving of what he's doing but she she's not going to put her foot down and really try to put a stop to it but this is like the darkest moment probably in the whole fucking movie yeah um because there's the game's still going um but i tried to write this quote down but like he says and i'm not going to say this in the mark voice but he says every bitch ass motherfucking factory worker is going to go down like that too in response to i think a a football like somebody getting tackled on the field yeah. and uh dad comes in he <laughs> the timing of this was actually kind of funny in a very dark moment but da- dad pops his head around the corner and says hey mark none of that conversation in response to him you know dropping f bombs and stuff as soon as dad's out of the frame though like mark like hisses through his teeth i will never be like you you 40 hour a week working motherfucker and again that speaks to his mentality where it's just so much of his decision making is just based on on that credo of just not being that guy not being a normal person um spring 1997 sunrise to sunset <laughs> in a public bathroom this was, i don't know what the fuck this was but we're recording adr and apparently the acoustics we want are that of a public restroom i was trying to figure out what they were for too maybe they're maybe in the 
maybe in the film he's in the bathroom for this. I don't really maybe. know. I don't, I don't know. know, but he he needs his actor man to say the phrase sunrise to sunset in That's a public speaking. restroom. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then just the, the visual of a man sitting on a toilet in a public restroom while another man holds a microphone up to his face. <laughs> um, at this point, uh, we, we see a Tom, and now he's grown a mustache. He doesn't wear it well. No, I, I will say that. But I don't think he looks good. With he the has a certain look. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I wouldn't want him in my neighborhood if I had kids. No. <laughs> um, but he he says a few words about Mark here, and he says that he admires him because he's indomitable, and uh, he's not wrong. No. Uh, man, the man is persistent. Uh, and then we get the maybe the greatest scream in cinema history. It's so good, everybody. It's so good. It. If Mike had nothing else going for him, but like all his screaming recording is going well, but Mike's scream—it's in the trailer for crying out loud. Oh, it is. Yeah, I didn't I, know that. I sent—I sent the trailer to Steph. I was trying to explain this to her. I'm like, can I just send you the trailer so you can get an idea of what we're talking about? The trailer is really good, but yeah, oh, the really? first thing is him screaming, and you get—it's uh, amazing. It's really good. Yeah, Mike Mike Shank can fucking scream. He channels some demons. He he's like scream like you're in hell, like you're burning in hell. Like he has everybody mm-hmm. do it. And there's some pretty good ones, but yeah, Mike's is really good. Yeah, I mean the thespian Robert, Robert the thespian. He he has a decent one, except for it's more like a, a hooting and a and like ooh, ah, 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 ah. it's like it's like ooh, that's hot. But yeah. Mike Mike's is like primal like you he sounds like chilling. he's dying. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's chilling. And I love the build up to it where like Mark just says like, okay, I'm going to say go. And then like go in, in like a couple seconds. Okay. And you just see like Mike go. <laughs> and, it's just, like, and the the punchline though is, is Mark like holding his headphones and he's just got this big shooting and green on, grin on his face. He's like, that was pretty wicked, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes, that is the correct response that to that. Um. Then we get our photo session with uh, Robert the Thespian and uh, uh, the fine gal yes. uh, off in the woods. Milwaukee's and, uh, best. Mark, Milwaukee's best. <laughs> um, Mark is uh, directing the photographer to make sure to get her chest in the frame. Uh, I don't think he did <laughs> because the, the flyers do not include that. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we get a really cute moment where uh, Mark is watching the Oscars with Joan. And it's like... Uh, you know, I would be tempted to slip that into the documentary too, where it's like, oh, this inept filmmaker is is watching the Oscars. Yeah. I wonder how that makes him feel. Um, we do some, we're doing some more ADR stuff. Uh, people getting dra- dragged through the woods and stuff through the swamp. Uh, Mark is directing traffic on the shoot there. Um, around this time is when we get the interview with the dad, where he he mentions that Uncle Bill was a scholar at one point. Um, more important though, we get an interview, um, where Mark is being interviewed by like the local newspaper. Um, and this is where he, he reiterates that concept of like the frontier and about how, how drinking and like the drama and the thrill that come from that are like the essence of, of all the stories that he's trying to tell. That's like what he idolizes about living. And we get that moment where the the newspaper editor or whatever is interviewing him and like pauses for a second he's like but what do you mean by that yeah. <laughs> he's like could you try to explain it a little better and i still don't quite know what he's getting at likely because i never lived that life but i think 
I think it's just like a moment in time or something that maybe he looks at with like rose tinted glasses where it's like being a young teenager with a camera and a beer is that's his happy place that's his happy time and he's he doesn't quite know how to express it but somehow like that's key to the stories that he's trying to tell he's trying to i think he's trying to capture a mood that he was in and that was the world's in front of me and it's i've got everything i need i've got i got my beer i got my camera it's all in front of me and he's still trying to capture that but that's he doesn't have that anymore and he's not going to recapture that he's a little bit delusional in the sense that it's like you have a beer and a camera in, in one hand yes but you also have three kids, yeah. no no real steady job, and you live with mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe drop the camera and the beer and, you know, start doing something about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, I think it's during Uncle Bill's dinner that uh, mom mentions on camera that she thinks Ken Keen and Mark are a, a bad influence on each other. Yeah. And we get, we get this lovely editing moment where Ken Keen is like, I think peer pressure's bullshit. Yeah. And then the very next cut is uh, Mark driving, and he's like, Yeah, we're here to pick up Ken, Ken from, from jail. jail. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so that's hard. Beautiful. That was great. That's, that's beautiful. I'm like, yep, picking up Ken from jail. Uh, yeah, yeah and I don't know what he did, but apparently, like bunch of detectives like raided his house or something yeah that's when i thought it was going to take a drug turn uh he probably had weed or something and the it's they seem like they're there's not in milwaukee i i think are they in milwaukee i think they're outside in the smaller town it's a small town yeah i wouldn't be surprised if it's nearby it's probably just weed in the 90s my goodness um yeah it's never explicitly stated what what he did but i mean he i don't think he was gone that long no at least I didn't get that sense watching the film. He was probably, um, I, I can tell you what he was doing. He was selling weed. That's what he was doing. I wouldn't be surprised. That's what I'm guessing. Uh, um, but yeah, at this point, everybody's helping out editing the film. And oh my God, it is a production. Um, we get a fun moment in the junkyard where uh, Mike Shank is smashing windows and uh, they're recording the audio. You can tell they're having a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. I would have a lot of fun doing that. Um <laughs> Then uh, Mark has to explain what the word cathartic means to Mike, and it's it's a cute little friendly moment. (laughs) Summer 1997. Uh, Robert the Thespian tells us that by the premiere date for Coven, uh, that will mark about just over three years of production. That's that's a decent chunk of time. I mean, that's, that's like not, what, Richard Linklater numbers, but that's still th- three years. That's yeah, quite a bit of time to put into. Th- yeah, it's quite a bit of time to put into th- a thirty-five minute film. Um, we got a fun little episode here where Mike Shank and uh, I called him Stumbles because this guy, just looking at him, I had zero confidence in him in him as a human being. I was like, "That's an idiot." <laughs> 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 it's like, they uh, they somehow lost like all the flyers for the movie that they were supposed to be putting up around the university, and it takes like five minutes to tell the story of how they lost the flyers and like every word of it. You're just like, just just tell me you're an idiot and you fucked yeah. up, and call it a day. But no, we have to go through this whole song and dance. Um, Memorial Day, 1997. Mark is taking down flags, and this is where we get the poop story. So Mark tells us that. Uh, 
at some point during his work day, he got called in uh, to the restroom of the cemetery uh, because he had to clean up some shit. Uh, not not like a, a mess in the toilet, but like on the toilet. And he has this pretty profound quote here where he's like, I'm 30 years old. In about 10 seconds, I got to start cleaning up somebody's shit, man. And I don't know. It was like it was like a moment where he it started to click a little bit. Mm-hmm. It probably didn't register as strongly as it needed to, but started to click a little bit that like, man, I need to make some changes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and then I think the last drama that happens before Coven's release is a uh, somehow, and I mean, he has mom, he has Mike Shank, he has Ken Keen handling the editing of his film. So I don't imagine at all how this could have happened, but somehow, uh, they lost two frames of the movie, um, lost, uh, meaning somewhere his film has like two, two frames. They're just blank just missing and i can understand how that would throw you into a bit of a panic especially with like two days before the thing's supposed to come out um and it just speaks to what what i mentioned earlier about uh like digital versus analog Mm -hmm. like imagine the same guy with different tools this likely would not have happened if he was doing like a, a digital film shot on the cheap um, but because he's dealing with 16 millimeter that needs to be developed and cut by hand and shit, stuff like this can happen, <laughs> especially when you have a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing doing the editing for you. Uh, so we go to the premiere. I believe the premiere date is June 12th, 1997. Yep. And it actually looks kind of lively. Like, yeah. This was a decent crowd. Like it looked, it actually looked like a fun little event here. And uh, Uncle Bill shows up. Dad's there too. Uh, and then we finally get to see uh, some footage of Coven. Um, and what did you think, Kyle? It didn't look too bad, honestly. I would I would actually like to watch it. I want to see what the uh, finished product is. Um, nice shots. Uh, they actually show some of the shots in the trailer, and they actually don't show them in the in the film here. So having the trailer shots of Coven and and the shots here, I'm like, yeah, I want to see how it turned out because it I think it probably turned out pretty decent for how much time and effort put went into it considering the resources this guy had he had one fucking camera yeah no no joke man he had one fucking camera and as far as i could tell no real crew no and uh i don't know what they were doing for lighting but i i'm sure i'm sure like all the outdoor stuff they just had to do natural lighting yeah um, but but yeah a lot of the the black and white images actually look calculated they actually look good yeah <laughs> Um, and yeah, I do have it. I do have it available to me, so I, I'd like to watch it as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of funny because you know Mark, who's normally so quick when he's on the microphone, like after the movie's over, he's like babbling. Like, he's basically incoherent. Yeah. Like, he says some stuff about like he's he does like a shout out to Mike Shank about how like you're like I'm glad you're happy, Mike. Like don't drink. Uh, you're gonna set the world's record, and then he just kind of like wanders off the stage. It's really weird. Like you can tell he was in a weird headspace because normally he'd have a lot of stuff to say, but he just kind of like says a few things and marches off the stage. <laughs> he's disheveled. He's just trying to like thank thank people. He's like, I I probably missed some people. I'm sorry if I missed you. Like, 
thank you so much. Like he's really, he's really grateful, but also it's like his art's out there. Like it's a finished product and he's probably got a lot going on in his head, especially after watching it. I mean, like you said, well, I mean, I hate to say it, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was disappointed. Yeah. I mean, that's the life of an artist is to forever be dissatisfied with what you're doing. (laughs) um, But I believe the closing scene is a, Mark and Uncle Bill, and they're sitting on Uncle Bill's like porch for his trailer. And Mark is trying to be encouraging of Uncle Bill. He's like congratulating Uncle Bill on his investment, saying like, "Like, are you ready to do the next one? Like, we need fifty thousand dollars or whatever to make yeah. it." And like Uncle Bill's just, you can tell actually like Uncle Bill's a little bit happier than normal. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's more receptive to what Mark has to say, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, whatever." Um. But we get this moment here where, like, Mark is talking about the American dream. And we d- we haven't really talked about it much, but that, that uh, phrase is something that he throws around a lot. Like, the American dream. Um, and then at some point, Uncle Bill, like, puts his head down, like, in between his knees. And you can tell he's, like, thinking really hard. Like, he, he's gathering up his thoughts and his words. And then he just lifts his head and he says some stuff that's borderline incoherent. About like it's almost like nature of life kind of stuff where it's like yeah you you know you you come stay a while make people laugh make everybody happy and then you're gone and it's like i i'm still struggling to understand what he was trying to get out there but i feel like he was trying to impart some sort of knowledge to mark like you know your your dreams are are fleeting in some ways like like they they could just be that dreams, so like maybe get your priorities straight or something. Mm-hmm. But it was it was some sort of response to what Mark was saying, and you could tell he had some measure of frustration about him. But it just the way it was phrased was very very hazy. I didn't mm-hmm. quite get it, but it, it spoke to me on an emotional like just a purely emotional level. Um, then we learned that a uh, Bill died September thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven. Uh, and he left Mark $50,000 to finish the filming of Northwestern, which apparently he never did, which is kind of sad. Uh, that would have been really cool if he did, but um, that's unfortunate. And then the closing shots of the film are, like, varied shots of uh, Mark's films from over the years at, at different stages in life. And it's just a bunch of clips from all of his different movies of, like, him, Ken Keen, and Mike Shank dicking around and... Uh, then Mr. Bojangles plays over the credits, <laughs> and that's American movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I'm not gonna say it was a fun ride. It was. Um, it had ups and downs. Uh, this isn't. Um, this one has more heart. I feel like it's. It's definitely gonna tug at you a little bit. It's gonna make you kind of mad. It's gonna make you sad. Uh, not so much like. Death of Superman lives where it's just sad uh, the whole way through. We were robbed of a Tim Burton Superman movie, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Um, no, I I think it's I think it's just good old fashioned human drama where it's like no matter what what place you come from, like you you've seen these people at some point in your life, and if you can find empathy for those people, then you can you can find a way to enjoy this story. Yeah. And you know, it's about it's about troubled people that, you know, aren't really 
don't really have the best starting point in life i'd i'd assume um but i don't know it as as somebody who tries to go out on you know creative endeavors every once in a while this movie works for me it's it's something that i put on every once in a while when i i need like a little bit of motivation to to do something mm-hmm. um but yeah I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it on some level um Anyway, so that was American Movie uh, from 1999, directed by Chris Smith. Um, I believe I get next pick for next week again? I think so. I think we're going in chronological order, like order of release. So we did Hearts of Darkness, which was 1991, and this was 1999, and Kung Fu Elliot is 2013. So yeah, that would be me again, and then you get to close out the month. Um, So yeah, next week we'll be covering Kung Fu Elliot. Uh, which I'm arguably more excited about covering than this one, but we'll <laughs> see what your opinion is of it. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, catch you next time. Yeah.